What's happening, weirdos? This is Alan Havey. I loved him on Mad Men. I worked with him on Crashing, and he has been a staple of uh, not just the New York, but the L.A., just the comedy scene in general. But what wonderful stories about the cellar, about uh, comedy in general, about life in general. He had so much more wisdom and insight than I even anticipated. You'll, you'll see I went into this episode knowing Alan a little bit, thinking we were going to be roasting each other and kind of breaking balls and all that. Uh, so you'll see I kind of come in with that energy. But then Alan really disarmed me with just how earnest, funny, and sincere he was. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear this episode. Um, unrelated to anything, I just want to plug as a Pete's pick, Ted Lasso. Have you guys watched Ted Lasso? I don't I watched the um the trailer and for some reason I was like, ah, oh, it doesn't look like it's for me. And then I gave it a try and, and I loved it. We watched it in three days. This is this is for nothing. This isn't uh sponsored. This is just me telling you, wanna talk about a Pete's pick? Get into fucking Ted Lasso. Shit blew me away. I love it so so much. I wish uh Jason Sudeikis did it after Ted Lasso did this podcast. He did it a long time ago. Um, but it would have just been two hours of me talking about how much I love Ted Lasso. So there's a Pete's pick. Uh, the other Pete's picks are the best way to support this show. If you guys like this always free podcast, it means a lot. If you try one of the Pete's picks, it what keep it's what keeps us afloat, and it means a lot. I'm excited that we have a new Pete's pick, which I'm very excited just because the name alone makes me laugh, which is Kitty Poo Club. Are you a cat person? I'm a cat person. I have a dog, but <laughs> I'm a cat person, and my dog can tell. And you love your cat, but that doesn't mean you love having a litter box in your home. Literally, the worst part of having a cat is the litter box. And Kitty Poo Club, finally... 2021, we have a solution to taking care of the most unpleasant part of cat ownership so you can get back to loving your furry friend. Working from home, like so many of us are, means more time for your morning coffee or an occasional nap, or if you're me, sometimes two naps. And of course, the opportunity for your furry feline friend to walk across the keyboard in the middle of a Zoom call. But you love having your cat around, but you don't love being around the litter box. Who does? It's the worst. It's like not human. It's not what was intended. Changing my cat litter box is so easy and not messy and I don't mind it at all. Said no one ever. No one said that. So it's time to say goodbye to the litter box as you know it and say hello to Kitty Poo Club. This is something I'm, I'm getting from my mom. She just got two cats, which I'm very excited about. And I know how she feels about the kitty litter box. And I am signing my mom up for Kitty Poo Club. It is the all-in-one litter box solution designed to be convenient for you. Every month, Kitty Poo Club delivers an affordable, high-quality, recyclable litter box that's pre-filled with the litter of your choice. The boxes are, of course, leak-proof, they're eco-friendly, and have a fun design for every season. When the month is up, just recycle the box, and Kitty Poo Club will automatically deliver a new one. No more scooping out the Lincoln Logs, no changing used litter, and no more cleaning the box. No one likes it. I love this. You can customize your order based on how many cats you have, two in my mom's case, and what type of litter you prefer. And Kitty Poo Club has a no-risk guarantee that you can easily customize or cancel at any time. Time. And right now, Kitty Poo Club is offering 20% off to weirdos for your first order when you set up auto ship by going to kittypooclub.com and using promo code WEIRD. 
Just go to kittypoocub.com and enter promo code WEIRD to get 20% off when you set up auto ship. One last time, show your support of the show means a lot by going to kittypooclub.com and don't forget to enter promo code WEIRD at checkout like I will for my mom and her cat, which she named Baby. I actually believe it's a rescue that came named Baby, but that's pretty adorable. Our other Pete's pick this week is Dame. Dame. These are the best sex toys for couples for solo play. This is the premium stuff. You want some Dame products in your sex life. It is a women-founded company making toys for sex that close the pleasure gap. Developed and tested by real people with vulvas in Dame Labs, they're engineered to bring your solo and coupled play to new heights, making the world a happier, I'll say sexier place, one vagina at a time. As you know, we talk about embodiment. We talk about healthy sexuality on the show. It's so important, especially during quarantine. Let's talk about solo play. It's important. Let's talk about couple play. It's important. Let's maximize the joy we can get out of it with Dame products. Why do we have this taboo about sex toys? Dame is here to get that out of the way. Women-owned, the toys are developed uh, by women, vulva-tested, vulva-approved vibrators, founded by a sex educator and an engineering whiz. Dame develops toys to help real humans and couples like you. Their vibrators and accessories are made with medical-grade silicone, smart design principles, and lots of love, earning glowing press from the New York Times, W Magazine, and many more. Whether you're a couple looking for an extra boost where it matters, or on a journey of self-exploration, or like me, both, although this isn't for me, or like Val, both, haha, <laughs> I'm working Val into the ads, we're sure they'll earn a spot on your nightstand. They are for me, just not for the solo. They sent us the Arc G-Spot Vibrator, which is the perfect length and curve to help you get to that uh, secret spot that 100,000 stand-up comedians in the 90s said was unfindable, and the Palm, which is the flexible vibrator that bends to fit your needs, sort of like a sexy or sexier, I find Gumby sexy, so I'll say a sexier Gumby. And the best part, Dame offers hassle-free returns within 60 days, so your satisfaction is literally guaranteed. Try the Arc, try the G-Spot vibrator, scroll around. There couldn't be a more fun and sexy way to support this show and to support your healthy, joyful sex life. There's even a testimonial here. It was such a joy to add to my sex life, I never wanted to masturbate so much. That's from Nini25. Nini gave us that quote. Go to dameproducts.com slash weird today. Couldn't be easier. No promo code. Just go to dameproducts.com slash weird. Shop like you normally would, and you'll get 15% off and show your support of this show, which, as I always say, means so much. That's dameproducts.com slash weird. Dameproducts. D-A-M-E dot com slash weird. Do we have to spell dot com? Dot is period. C-O-M. You got it. And last but not least, my friends at MeUndies. What am I wearing? I'm wearing red MeUndies that have bowls of ramen, and on the bowls they say, send nudes. See? I'm wearing funny underwears, and it makes me happy. Let's talk about love. We're doing it. If there's one thing that got us through this past year, other than that video of Dogface vibing to Fleetwood Mac, it's love. And that means getting extra cheesy for Valentine's Day is okay. We'll allow it. 
Despite everything, we found new ways to match our daily lives together with the ones we love most. That's why MeUndies released their V-Day collection in undies, loungewear, and more, so you and your Valentine can match through it all. Show that special someone how much you care and say those three words everyone wants to hear. Match my undies. Val and I actually do have matching undies. It's pretty adorable. And if you're single, no problem. Show yourself some love and something that makes you feel amazing because you deserve that. Val and I heard about MeUndies a couple years ago. We uh, used their promo code, just like I'm hoping you use our promo code. Did a complete MeUndies overhaul and haven't looked back. I actually wear triple XL. I like them a little bit looser. Uh, I love the patterns. I love the colors. They fit great. You can do solids for your more formal look, or you can wear the ones that say send nudes like I'm wearing right now. They also make great PJs. Wait, I'm actually wearing double MeUndies. I'm wearing lightsaber MeUndies <laughs> lounge pants and MeUndies underneath. I'm double undies. They're made from sustainable, breathable, softer than soft fabric and available in a range from extra small to 4XL. And MeUndies members, that's what I have. I have a MeUndies membership. Gives you and your boo a new pair of undies or socks every month. Members are discount get discounted pricing on everything MeUndies makes as well as early access to major print launches like the Star Wars ones I'm wearing right now. So MeUndies has a great offer for weirdos. For any first-time purchaser, you get 15% off and free shipping. They also have a problem-free philosophy, Akuna Matata style. If you're not satisfied with any product for any reason, they'll refund or exchange it. No caveats, no questions. So that's 15% off undies. You need undies? You like this show? You want to support this show? Get some undies! It would mean a lot. Go to MeUndies.com slash weird. That's MeUndies.com slash weird for 15% off and free shipping. Get into it. Get into it. Get a Pete's Pick. Use some Dame on or under your MeUndies. And then uh, never change your kitty litter box again with Kitty Poo Club. That's pretty good. That sounds like a better life. And uh, for right now, let's listen to the incredible Alan Havey. Boy, I enjoyed him so much. He's so funny and uh, so talented and so nice. So please enjoy Get Into It. Smooth, sultry, borderline sexy voice of Alan Wavy Gravy, small head on the Zoom Havy. Wow. Just hang on a second, okay? Give me, let me adjust. You, you, look at you in your goddamn studio. It's not a... What are you kidding me? Yeah. It's a garage. No, no. It's a Can you turn baby. off your baby. off-brand holiday content in the background? Hang on a minute, you prick. Off-brand? What are you watching? Peanuts Christmas, you salty dog? <laughs> just wanted to put up a good logo behind me. Okay. <laughs> Peanuts Christmas. Peanuts Christmas. That's what I'm watching over here. Really? Do you have kids? I do. I have a I have a two year old daughter. I almost said six, <laughs> just out of nowhere. She's two. Wow. Yeah, Con- she feels six. Congratulations, buddy. Yeah, thank you. Nice, nice to see you. Thanks for coming on. Good to see. You. I'm glad I finally uh, got on the show. This is so nice. Uh, such a nice surprise. Did Koppelman help? Ooh, Koppelman did help. Did you ask him to help? No, I did not, because I don't beg and I don't work people. You know what, Alan? I've had your number for years. I've never said, let me on your podcast, please. Are we, are we recording now? 
Yeah, oh, this is the good stuff. This is it? This is it. This is the oh, show. Man, this is not, no, this is, see, I'm old school show business. We have a whole chat first. Then I have a guy come in and make me up and then boom. Okay. Hang on. <laughs> oh my God. You're drinking an espresso from proper cuppage, which I appreciate. And you're eating a piece of very thin pizza. That's why I like it. <laughs> Small cups, thin pizza. No, I I was gonna say, I would have loved it if you said, "Hey, Cobbleman, you're doing the podcast. Put in a word. I love put in a word. What's wrong with putting a word? Here's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. But here's the thing uh, with Brian. I don't have to put in a word because he's, he's just been a sweetie. Yeah, well, he's just uh, been talking me up since he met me at the age of, he was 19. I was 30. Oh and wow, he's been a, a a fan and friend, and mostly, thank God, a friend ever since. So. I mean, he did do the podcast recently. It's It hasn't come out yet. Um, well, maybe when this airs, it'll have come out. And uh, he spoke so highly of you. He, was, he said, and I quote, that I believe it was Jon Stewart that said, nobody's funnier than Alan Havey. That's very nice. And I believe it was Alan Havey that said, a lot of good it did me, John. How's that Daily Show working out? <laughs> Oh, 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 I see, Pete. So you're a guy that needs more. More what? See, more. Yeah, okay, John Stewart says, hey, hey, he's one of the funniest guys I've ever seen. Sure. I see that. Oh, I need more than that. I need to work, John, for work now. I guess I see. that's... That hey, John, be- if I'm so funny, you're making movies, why don't you put me in them? See, everybody wants more in this goddamn business. That yes. to me... You be salty. I'm trying to bring the salt out by being salty. You're supposed to be salty. I, I, I'll tell you You're right. Being sweet. No, I'm not being sweet. I'm telling you the way I, the way uh, I live. Okay. Tell when me. Someone gives you a compliment. Me. You say thank you. God bless you. That's what you say. You're and right. You, You're right. Stuck in infinity fear. So that you know, like, oh, uh, everybody's always looking for an opening. Oh wait, Pete Holmes said he liked my act. Maybe I can get around crashing. You know, I saw sure, Pete Holmes in the sure. bathroom laughing. Uh, or you can just. Like, if you go up to a comedian when you were doing the show and say, hey, man, that was a great set. And a comedian said, thanks, put me on your show. You right. Know? You're absolutely right, Avi. I, I guess, you know, I might be coming at this from the wrong direction. I'm in a good That's mood okay. today. You're a, you're a young guy. Well, you're a fun friend. You're a fun friend to say that. I just mean, I know you. It's true, as dude. The no, well, you're a good man. As the no-nonsense kind of, I, I was like, oh, I'm going to talk to Havy. I haven't talked to a comic in a while. So I came at this in that sort of like ball-breaky, let's talk shit way. And I went for the easy John Stewart put me on the Daily Show area. But you're absolutely right. I like your style. Talk a little bit more about the code and the honor. That's what Koppelman said. He said, talk to Havy about the code <laughs> of being a stand-up. Because you're absolutely right. I'm not just saying that to agree with you. If somebody was like, hey, uh, if I said good set and they were like, thanks a lot. Where's my fucking spot on crashing? Or if they said, have me on your fucking podcast, you know, my penis goes inside my body. It's like a very off-putting. Yes. And we we, talk about class, talk about honor, talk about the code. Well, and not so much the code, but if someone's nice to you, like uh, one time I was in Vegas and um, uh, Tarantino was shooting uh, NCIS there or uh, Law and Order, some one of those shows I don't watch. Quentin and, Tarantino? Yeah, Quentin Tarantino was directing a television he, episode of... He does TV uh, episodes? 
Yeah, CSI. He, I had did, no he idea. did it. Yeah, he did a couple uh, about I guess 10, 12 years ago. Well, so he was there and uh he so everybody had a good set and we're you know we're hanging out after we're selling merch and saying hello to the people and Tarantino leaves last. He's just hanging out with this girl he's seen. He leaves last come, hey, uh, you know, that was fantastic, great stuff. Thank you, blah blah blah. Now I said, Hey man, uh I, I really want to be in your movies. Uh, you know, that works against you, I feel. You know. Oh, or, sure. Or, or can you read my screenplay? Well, he writes his own screenplay. So just accept it. Maybe you got in his head and move on. Now, before the show, if I had known he was shooting a movie about like Inglorious Bastards, that was the, his next movie, yeah. I would have done a little German accent bit during my act. <laughs> See? That's so funny. That's what I've the, done that. That's what you do. Yes, we've all we've all Chelsea done. Peretti made fun of me so hard because I think I said it to her on this podcast, maybe. That Michael Sarah, who I'm a huge fan of Michael Sarah, was in the crowd. And I just knew, I was like, I'd just like him to know that I'm not just like a one-liner, like just saying perfect jokes guy. I'm going to kind of lean my set more actorly. So he goes, <laughs> I know, it's embarrassing to say, but this is the biz, baby. This is the biz. So, so you did, did a little monologue in between your jokes? No, no, I did. <laughs> yeah, I did a scene from uh, Flowers for Algernon. It was a, it was a page or two from Flowers. This is from Algernon. Grapes of Wrath. Yeah, there you go. The Glass Menagerie. I was the gentleman caller. I uh, I just did more act out things, and that's just I don't know. I always thought that's what show business was. Like, no, if there's an opportunity. Michael Sarah though is he? He's he's not a director, is he? <laughs> Why would you do that for Michael Sarah? You've never been in a thing and somebody's like, we need a guy for a thing. And even though you're acting in it, you know, you go like, I know a guy. No, 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 I don't. I don't. I don't give breaks to other people. You crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the way that crashing was, we had a lot of standups on there and we were talking about casting all the time. Those were the writers. So you're right. It's a stretch, but I'm in the business of uh, big stretches and irrational choices like doing a more actorly set for Michael Sarah. It led to nothing. No, of course not. But if if that's your instinct, go with it. Sure. You you did the right thing. But yours makes more sense because Tarantino could say, and for Inglourious Bastards, he put in so many, I call it distrasting. He put BJ Novak in, he put Sam, uh, Sam, Sammy Levine in there. So, like, you would have been perfect as a, as a. well, I'm sorry, but you would have been a great Nazi. Yeah, I would have been a great Nazi, but I looked at that movie and I said, there's no one in there I'm going to replace. Yeah, there, was no, a, there was no Nazi in there to go, oh, I could have done a better job, or as well as. It was no Nazi nonsense. Yes. Yeah, no, he, he cast guys who could really play Nazis. He got some great Nazis. We, yeah. I, I thought we'd mix things up and instead of talking about your story and who you are and, and, and how we met and all that good stuff, let's start with Mad Men. Do you know, you know, I'm a, we did that show together where we talked about, I'm a huge Mad Men fan. Right. Right. And, uh, and you, you did, gee, you know, I listened to, to you and uh, Oscar Nunez uh, a couple oh, days yeah. ago and I wrote right. down notes. Okay. He's going to ask me about my background. Okay. He's going to ask me about this. Okay. He's yeah. gonna ask me about, see, I do prep work even oh. for podcasts. I love um, it. But, you know, you want to jump into Mad Men, go right ahead. You know what? I'm going to take a note. Look at this pen. I'm just going to write down class act. Yeah. I wanna, I, no, I mean it. I want to talk about your philosophy because it's, I'm already won over with your perspective and your approach. 
and I want to talk about balancing art and life and business and art and all oh, that stuff. But let's get Mad Men out of the way. Oh, absolutely. Mad Men was like, at the age of 57, 58, was like a dream come true. Yeah. And I told this to Slattery when I talked to him. I've mentioned this uh, to other people. Um, John Slattery playing Roger Sterling. Yeah, there you go. You fill in that. Um, I just want to help people out. The Silver uh, Fox. It was like it, it. five years old. If you told me I was going to be on The Honeymooners, that's how excited I was. Wow. That's how much. I mean, my wife and I watched that show every week. We loved the show. And I had more people say to me, you know, people say at after comedy shows, hey, you should get on that, that Seinfeld show. Yeah. You know, you should, you, you should get your own TV show. See, these but, are the people that when they meet Seinfeld go, I'd love to be on your show. Like they, yeah. that's, that's the level of intelligence that we're trying to get above. I hear that. But I was uh, in a fever pitch to get on that show. And my uh, manager, Naomi Odenkirk, is the real reason I got the audition mm. for the first one, because she knew Matt Weiner. And uh, the part, uh, the first time I auditioned was for the second season, the doctor that uh, interrogates Liz after she had the baby. You mean Joan, but we can use the actor. No, it wasn't Joan. It wasn't Joan. Oh, I'm sorry. You're not talking about Joan and Peggy. the smoking doctor. About You're talking Peggy. about Peggy yeah. played by Liz. Wow. Yeah. Elizabeth Moss. Right. So anyway, but the actor was too young. But if I, I had gotten that part, I wouldn't have been on season That's six. Right. Season that's seven. right. You would so have cashed in too yeah. early. And that's where luck plays in. I, I got lucky I didn't get cast. Yeah. Uh, but you that's know. my favorite uh, proverb. Conan told it on this podcast, but it's a Zen proverb. Uh, I won't tell the whole thing here, but someone says, oh, my God, your house burned down. They say to the monk, that's terrible news. And he says, perhaps. And oh, then a week later, yeah. they discover gold in the rubble. And uh -huh. they go, oh, you found gold. What good news? And he says, perhaps. And it keeps going like that. It's like the aristocrats. You can that's tell be, the uh, that has to be a comforting uh, comforting uh, thought to everyone who lost their fire in California this year. That's beautiful. So <laughs> folks, if your house burnt down, just listen to Conan and there's the salt and <laughs> look at the gold. And it's, you know, that's another way there's of saying the, we'll salt. See. the Buddha says, we'll see, you know, that's it. That's it. Yes, it's we'll we'll see. See. Uh -huh. It was we'll in see. the movie, uh, uh, Charlie Wilson's war. Oh. Philip Seymour Hoffman character says that at the end, Hey, we did a good job. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Well, the gold is a little too obvious, but I mean, here you are not getting the part that you would have loved. I mean, season two, let's be real. That's the height of Mad Men fever. It, it sustained, but that was when the swell was picking up and everyone was Right, right. Excited. But it would, it would have been a one-off. Yeah. The doctor so did go. not come back. So anyway. We'll see. I get the audition and uh, it was a... It was a part uh, that was perfectly written, obviously. And I went into the audition and I played with it and it went real well. And then that night I got the part. That was December 18th, 2012. We're coming up we, on the verse. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so I got to uh, be on the show and, and work with Ham and, and Slattery. And that was great. I went to the table read. And then later, like a couple months later, hey, they want you to come back on, play the same character. Cool. So I do the, you know, the elevator scene going down. Don't hear anything. And people are saying, hey, you're going to be on next year on Mad Men. I go, I, you know, I haven't heard anything. And so uh, about a month before they started shooting, my uh, casting director calls me. She goes, Matt, Matt Weiner wants to know if you really know how to act. 
<laughs> and I said, I said, well, what'd you tell him? She goes, yeah. He goes, because he saw me in Louis. He goes, well, Louis is improvised. And no, Louis is scripted. That show is not improvised. So they had me in to audition. And um, it's like I had to re-audition because I did a couple scenes. And it was great because the scene, I was very comfortable with the character because it was a, really a composite of my father and the men he knew around 1969, 1970. That. Yeah. And I worked my ass off on it. It worked. And uh, I was in heaven. But I couldn't yeah. tell anybody. You have to sign an NDA. Oh, wow. So I had to contain that. I could only tell my wife. Wow. I mean, it's so, a weird position to be in. You have to lie to everyone except your wife, you know. <laughs> so there was a moment where it could have gone to a different character. Like, even though they had introduced you, they hadn't introduced yes, you. Yes, if I had not over. gone in and done that, they go, you know, let's get John Lithgow. Or, you know, let's, yeah. let's just let's spend the money and get a good actor in here. So you were impressive in front of the right Sarah. <laughs> I'm doing okay. stand-up for Michael Sarah. That's the wrong guy. You you yeah. were impressive. I was trying to get where, where the Sarah is, but it was an yeah. actual audition. Michael Sarah is not there. <laughs> I'm looking for comedians who have an acting skill. You uh, know, I want to interject this. The only time that worked almost was I did a commercial <laughs> with Justin Long. I tell you this to see if you have any stories like this. Justin Long, it's one of those Apple commercials. I'm basically a background actor. I have a line, but I'm basically a background actor. And then we riffed so much. I can be the silliest boy when I'm excited. And it, when I was in my 20s, I was unbearably even more excited than I am now. So I'm riffing with him. I'm making him laugh. Like four or five months later, he calls me and says, there's a part in a movie that I think you'd be great for. It did not happen. I didn't. I was so green. I didn't even know what to ask. Who's casting it? What's the part? What's the name of the movie? I was just right. Like, okay, let me know. And like it, it just went away because that's what. Yeah. Well, that's are. when you said, "Oh, great, Justin. Thank you so much. Uh, what's the project? What's the casting director's name?" Yeah. You exactly. Know, you let, have your let me you know, take this from here. That's yes. when you have to do the follow through, the yes. due diligence, and that call came to you from out of the blue, right? It sure did. Oh, that's see, that's what you do. That's how it happens. Yes, and it so could it have been how it happened. And I called Dave Rath, my manager, and I and he was like, "What's the movie? Who's the cast?" I didn't know anything. I was yeah. just like, "I don't know." Justin Long said uh, I could be in it, and I mean, that one is sort of on me. If I had gotten the right info from him, maybe maybe it I would have not have worked out anyway. But at least you know in your heart of hearts, well, I did everything I could. That's right. I could have so been. That's in a solid for Justin Long. You know. He anyway, still gets the points. Getting back to Mad Men. So I'm on the show. I'd rather not. I'm you'd rather not what? Oh, jeez. Don't. Because, see, this is when I talk about it. When people, uh, when people see me in an airplane, they go, do I know you? This is what I say. Did I audit you? And then they uh, go, oh, That's you know great. I yeah. love that. You mean this is when you talk about it. I was 100% JK because I couldn't be more interested. Are you kidding? Please continue about Mad Men. So you're on this set, you're with these actors you love, but you also have to be the boss, you know? So I was very kind of aloof. I just kind of did my job and minded my own business and I was quiet. And it's amazing thing in this business. If you do your job and you're quiet and you don't 
engage in conversations. Like I never said, oh, this is my favorite show. I love you guys. None of that stuff. Just yeah. went in, did the job, and then realized, oh, they feel I'm here because I, I guess I earned it. Because, you know, right. you, 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 I felt like a fish out of water when yeah. I first got there. I can't fucking believe it. Not only that, I'm the boss. I took over for Draper. And you took his office. Yeah, I took his office. I had everything. It was You fantastic. took the office that he threw the money in Peggy's face. You had the office where he said you should wake up every morning and thank me along with Jesus for giving <laughs> you another day. That was your office. Yeah, that was my office. And I mean, as if you don't know, your character's kind of a heel. Like he's he's a wet blanket. No, he was a hardworking guy and people hated him because they loved all these characters. <laughs> I said that. I said. Uh, I said. You that, were so mean to Donald. No. Well, Don, listen. Here's the thing. At 1970, I was my age. I'm an old school advertising guy. I've heard about this Draper guy. He called the Hershey Company a whorehouse. He's a boozer. He cheats on his wife. This, yes. This, this Lou had a different moral compass. Lou was an old school guy. This look, I wrote down class act. I might as well have written down old school. You're telling me you went to this show where I just told you I couldn't go to an Apple commercial and not be like a cheese ball, Mm -hmm. and you played it fucking cool. And that probably led to more episodes, better relationships. It's great. Yeah, because I I, I was already cast. So I wasn't going to go in there and try to ingratiate myself because I was already there. But what happened was uh, the. You know, they liked the work, which was, I got to admit, pretty easy to do. The, the writing's perfect. The direction's clear. The other cast is rock solid. It's, it's, yeah, it was an, dream. almost a no brainer. I yeah, saw it, I, you know, I worked on the part. I did it different ways. And, but, uh, but it, the kick was I couldn't tell anybody. And that made it even more powerful. That made yeah. me even more focused. And when and so when it finally came out that you know when the show aired I was on the show people said, you know Nikki Glaser said you lied to me you know I said I lied to everybody. <laughs> and they go how many are you on? I go can't talk about it. Sorry because Weiner laid down the wall. You sign an NDA. He will take you out of the show if you talk about the plot or anything. Anyway, it was it was fantastic. It was probably the most fulfilling time of my life. I didn't want or need for anything. If you would ask me then, okay, who do you want to work with? Woody Allen, Spielberg, or Matt Weiner? On Matt? I would have taken Mad Men hands down. Yeah. Me, it was, I, it, I'm not it just was, saying this to agree with you. I, I would have as well. It, it, that is that is sort of as exciting as it got. If you could be on a show, I love The Sopranos, so don't get me wrong, but it didn't have the same... Um, Again, don't get me wrong. Sopranos is one of the greatest shows of all time. Yeah. But I tried to watch Sopranos recently in the quarantine. And it's a very, very dark show. And there's a lot of ugliness to it. So that sort of just puts Mad Men another click up. You don't have to be on there in a strip club getting your, your knob, whatever. I would you have can... loved that. Are you kidding me? I would have loved a part of the Sopranos. What are you? What are you? Because you get a part in one thing. Well, I don't need a part in another thing. I take no, a Breaking no, no. Bad. I would have been just... a crack addict. I would have been a male prostitute. No, don't misunderstand me. I would have loved to be on The Sopranos. I would have blown a horse in fear. Come on, <laughs> you don't take yourself. Don't don't say that. Well, The Sopranos was dark. I don't want to be on that. You're an actor, dude. Yeah, you're reps. I mean, dude, I've been wrong nine times on this podcast. I'm reading this book. <laughs> I, that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to be wrong, and you can look good. 
The Man Who Heard Voices. I love this book. I read it in three days, and I have a two-year-old. That is a, an incredible What is it? It's about M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, it's called How M. Night Shyamalan Risked His Career on a Fairy Tale and Lost. I really have never read a book so fast. I wow. Couldn't, couldn't rec- You'll love it. Being so, in the business. Am I going to learn from his mistakes? Or Yes, you will. And if you're like me, you'll recognize some of his mania. You'll recognize the the ups and downs. But here's why I mention it. So Paul Giamatti is in The Lady in the Water, which is the movie the book is about, right. about how, how it didn't work. And so Giamatti, you're reminding me of Giamatti in that like his whole thing is like, I don't want uh, fancy shit. I don't want to be led into restaurants. I want to go in, do my job. I'm not going to blow smoke up. M. Night Shyamalan's ass. I'm not going to uh, engage in conversations with the executives. I want to be the guy who's polite and nice and cool. But he cites Michael Caine. He's like, you go, you do your job, and and, and you leave. Not in a cold way, but right. like it sounds like you did on Mad Men. Yeah, and it, it took a while to learn that, you know. Um, but that, it, you, it, you used to be a ham? <laughs> Not a ham, but, you know, I go on and talk to people and, you know, I, I don't think I bugged anybody, but I probably chatted a little too much on certain gigs, but I learned pretty yes. quickly. And also I had theater training. I went to college. I studied uh, theater at Florida State and I had watched Carson when I was a kid. We'll get to that later. But so I kind of knew the rules of show business by the age of 10 or 11. I misunderstood the rules of show business. I thought... Again, excited puppy. And I'm putting, I'm really going to put this back to you. But when I did Crashing, and maybe this is a good time to talk about our time on Crashing, which I also told this story on the Koppelman episode because I was so impressed with what you did. I'm really not just saying that because I said it to Brian as well. But um, thank you. I, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's tell the story. But I just want to say real quick I learned that I had been the annoying person on other jobs. Really? Because just because I don't mean over the line annoying. Mm-hmm. I just mean, it's a gamble. You better hope that you can read cues and, Oh, they seem like they're in the mood for a chat. I'll go with it because the level of exhaustion that I hit on that show, I actually talked to him, John Ham, a little bit about it, although he understands it a million times more because he was doing so many episodes. It's an hour long show. It's completely different. But when you're in a show and you're in every scene, a lot of, everything literally goes through or around or within or beside you. So like if you had a background actor, like I was with Justin Long on that Apple commercial, who was really excited to be there and was letting everyone know and was talking to you and like it started, I never would have even thought this, but you start to feel like a vampire. You're, you're taking their energy that they might right. be saving for the performance. And I thought it was more like, we're all excited puppies. How did we get here? We were the weirdos in high school and now we're in, in uh, on a TV show. This is incredible. You have to learn, as you just said, in time, like play it cool, act like, you know, be alert, look alive and act like, you know, tribe called quest. Yeah. It, it, well, it's like getting in the end zone, act like you've been there, act like you belong there. You don't yeah. have to dance around. You have to throw, you know, you cross the goal line, you flip the ball to the official, you trot back to the bench. Yeah. Same thing with doing stand up. You know, oh if you God. have a great set, you don't stand there and hold your arms out. You say, thank you. And you leave. Hey, let me tell you, this is a serendipity. So you're talking about, I was joking a hundred percent when I said, why didn't you put me on the daily show? And it was a cheap joke. 
Right. You, I know you were. You, you, I know, but, and you correctly, uh, course corrected me and that was a hundred percent right. There was a guy who I knew in earnest, a seller guy who used to talk shit like that all the time. And that guy who used to talk shit like what used to talk shit like, Oh, I did this. Why aren't I on your fucking show, dude? Like would just kind of be jokey, but in that way that you knew he wasn't Wasn't jokey. jokey. Yeah. Uh-huh. Same guy when he would get off stage was one of those follow that dudes that would say to the next comic, follow that. Come on. Oh, my and one God. one sort of begets the other, right? You're not surprised. It's the same kind of guy yeah. that, as you said, yeah. expects more. And then when he kills, thinks that like, as I always say, it's a Leo Cullum New Yorker cartoon with dogs in a boardroom saying it's not enough that dogs succeed. Cats must also fail. It's a guy that thinks it's yeah. not enough that I killed. The next guy also has to struggle because I killed so hard. What are you talking about? Same team. Same yeah. show. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. My philosophy on comedians. We are out for ourselves, but we're in it together. I love you know? that. And that's why you do your time. You, you know, you you don't hold back, but you do your time, you get off and you move on. Here, here's what I've said. Like if I have a, a, a good set at Hermosa, I'll walk back to the green room. And I'll, uh, I'll just look at everyone and go, sorry about the noise. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great, dude, I already wrote It's a great down. way to be a dick and get a laugh, you know. Class act. Class if you, if, no, but if you, can, if you can be a dick and get a laugh, then. It takes the then dickiness it, off. It does. It negates the dickiness. You're yeah. absolutely right. Man, that is fantastic. So you came on crashing. You were like Koppelman. You have a lot of uh, like John Stewart. Judd Apatow is another one of these guys that loves you. And we're talking about this part. And I only say this to heighten the compliment to you. I even had some ideas for this part. I was like, I think I know who this guy is. And he was like, I think it should be heavy. And that's one of, I, I, this sounds maybe untrue, but it's one of the pleasures of having a real big cheese in your, in your camp. Because when the big cheese says something, you know, you can just go like, okay. Like, like, I, I, no, like, but didn't you audition other actors for that part? That might've been why he said get heavy. That, that yeah. happened a lot. Okay, there would be other that... auditions and he'd go, you know, who's right. It, it was very, um, I don't know. I've just heard of other executives that are like that. They're seeing the auditions and what they're not seeing reminds them of who has what they're looking for. I know that sounds sort of backwards. No, no, I hear you. No, listen, let me tell you from my end. Hit it. I'm in London. I'm over there going to Wimbledon for the first time. What a cool story already. Hey, yeah. Eight-year-old Thai kid beat me in the third round. But anyway, I'm over watching Wimbledon, which is my dream come true to go to Wimbledon. And uh, I'm having a fantastic time. And uh, Jimmy Carr, the comedian. Yeah, fantastic. Comedian. He's very, very dark humor. I, that's what I love about him. He's such a sweet guy and so unassuming and oh, looks we, totally benign. See that? So I was kind of coming at you, Roasty, at the beginning. That gear, I love going in that gear. And when I was in a stairwell in Montreal doing roast jokes, it's one of, it was a career highlight is to just think of the meanest shit you could say. And the way he thought about it was, was crystal clear. It was awesome. So we meet in at the comedy zone in New York. I tell him I'm a big tennis fan. He invites me to Wimbledon and I say, don't fuck with me, dude. 
don't don't lie to me. I mean, I will come over. I'll tell you that right now. This is something I will. I don't work comedians for anything, but I will. Yeah, uh, I will come. So, so I go. But he, here's the guy that doesn't work that keeps getting things. I love the Alan Havy story. So I'm I I go there. He takes me to a couple of really posh parties. I have no business being at. I go to Wimbledon a couple a couple of different days. I get back to the hotel. Get look at my emails. Judd Apatow has cast you in Crashing with Pete Holmes. <laughs> so I look at the script and I go, oh, my God. This is like a great part for any comedian. <laughs> the the warm-up guy that has a snap. Yeah, the, the, like anybody that snaps. But the, I get to yell at an audience. Yeah. I get to tell an audience to go fuck themselves. Yeah. This is like a dream come true. Yeah, And right. I never met you. We met yeah. the first time on that set. And who was the director on that uh, episode? Do you remember? That's a great question. Unfortunately, it's a blur. Yeah, um, everything's a blur. But he was—he was a good guy. But you guys—it was a man. It, yeah, it was, it was a dude. Uh, no, it was a guy. Dude I, I, I bet I can think of it. I bet I can think. Okay. Of it. Keep going. But the audience, those—that uh, audience, those were all you know extras, and they were great. They collectively worked well with me, like. At yeah. the beginning, they were smiling. When I got into them, they started getting frowns and they looked, they didn't try to like, you know, steal focus, but they were like really upset. So it was great to play off them. Alan, I don't think they were acting because my story of that day is after you throw it, I have to take over. And then I go out and I say all these inappropriate things because it's, I don't won't get into the whole story, but I'm thrown and I start saying stuff. And like a woman walked out, like one of the extras left because, and I was just doing what was in the story, which was supposed to be saying, I forget I was talking about like dry humping or, or, or something or oral sex. And, and like someone left, we had a walk off. <laughs> you know what? You know what? That actress said, you know what? As an actress, I feel my character would leave. I don't uh, think you know what I mean? And I so that was a good if, choice from that. If actor. that's true, then that actress needs to come back and leave at the same point every time. <laughs> like right, that's, right. That's, that, you know that, of course. Yeah. But anyway, you that interpreted was such a it fun differently. Day. That, that was such a fun day for me. So here I am in England. Judd Apatow, when you, yes. Judd Apatow has cast you, and I've known Judd for years, but I go, this is fantastic. And I, you know, I knew about the show. Yeah. I never met you. So it, that was, uh, that's a great day for me. Did you have to leave Wimbledon? I hope not. Of course not. I'm not, I'm not going to leave Wimbledon to come back and work with you. Are you out of your mind? See, it's about choices too, Pete. It's about you get an offer. Judd Apatow, not for Pete Holmes. <laughs> no, it was it was like a week after I came back. Okay, so it was good. great. Well, I wonder what would you have done if it was during Wimbledon? Would you? I'm I'm not looking for a, a grade on the show or the importance of the show. I'm looking for a lifestyle. Work trumps everything. What does work trumps oh. everything? Wimbledon okay. will be there next year. You know that is like it, that wouldn't even be a decision, right? You know, I wouldn't call Brian Koppelman and say, you know, Brian, I'm I'm at Wimbledon. It's my dream come true to go to this, but. Judd Apatow casting him. I'm working with Pete Holmes. I, you know, <laughs> the show will probably run five, six seasons. I'll, I'll get on it eventually. You know, <laughs> <laughs> is that a mild burn? I love it. If it is, 
course so it is. This is the there it is then. This is the salt I was looking for. Yo, you'll get the salt if we keep going. I know this is not going to be a twenty minute interview. I know we're going to really get into the shit here. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that you're game for that. I the story that I told, the script you saw when you got the part was most likely a script that that I and and the other writers certainly had had worked on. And then on the day, and this is just very much how Judd liked to work, it kept getting changed. So mm-hmm. on the day, my theory, by the way, it also comes up in The Man Who Heard Voices, is like these guys, and I'd love to ask Judd about this, who know that you need a little fear and you need a little chaos and you need like just to be a little off kilter. Like you could write the show word perfect, six months ahead of time. By the way, that's my fantasy. I love the Coen brothers. I love the way that people are like, this is how it is. Let's do it. Mamet, all those guys. Well, I work with the Coen brothers and they did change a couple lines about three three weeks before the shoot. Yeah. But go ahead. Okay. That's incredible. Which, which one was that? Uh, Hail Caesar. I love it. That's great. What was the, fuck this story. I'll I'll remember this story. No, 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 no. I I hate to jump around. Let me, let me cock block your show. No, cock block. This this is a bullshit story. I've already told. No, it's not a bullshit story. I want to hear this story. So go ahead. No, You, you, this is the compliment. This is the award. It's an auditory award, which, which means we can't put on your mantle, but you on the day, I was like, Everything we've written is pretty much gone. And the way I remember it was I basically had to say to you, or Ryan, the director, had to say to you, um, you basically just have to have a meltdown. Like, the meltdown wasn't scripted, and the meltdown was the most important part. I think I had written a meltdown, but it wasn't right for what for you it wasn't right for the scene anymore it wasn't and right for the scene i it here's what happened i wrote the meltdown on the plane coming back okay to la and then i wrote some more on la to new york and then i wrote a little bit more in the trailer now i didn't bring the pages with me but i just I'm got so... this stuff in my head and i knew i couldn't like get angry right away that it had to slowly build Yes. So once you, you set that template, the script was great because I know exactly what this guy's going to do. I've talked to en- enough warm up guys. Oh, I've been in enough in front of crappy crowds in my life. Yeah. And there's parts of comedians that we always want to explode on stage. What you, <laughs> what you laughed at that joke, but you didn't laugh at my lesbian joke. Are you fucking yeah. nuts? Yeah. You, you no. Know. So um, it was such a juicy part. So go ahead. I just remember going, and this happened many times on our show, and I, I never liked it, but I learned to trust it because it was it, it's what was happening, where I was like, the fate of the show is now entirely in the hands of this actor. <laughs> like, like, not just a moment, but like the point of the episode is that this happens and then Pete gets this job. So we need Alan to really do this in a believable way. And when you said, we were like, talk about how greedy and, and trivial and, and petty everybody is, materialistic. And you said on Christmas, when I was a kid, you'd get a, an orange and a pinwheel and you'd be happy or something like that. And I was just like, 
there were so few scenes that I wasn't in. So when I was in Video Village, just watching the show happening, it gave me that sense of like, I'm not in control. Like I can't even affect this. So much of my riffing on that show was to sort of direct through riffing. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'd, yeah. I'd try to get someone angry or I'd try to get someone, I often I would try to get their energy up by, by interrupting them and, and basically what I do on this podcast, trying to get them like to mirror me, but we wouldn't use any of that. Be, but that was a way of like act directing kind right. of. And this, it was just, Havy's on stage and you delivered. That is the award. I mean, you beyond delivered. And it was a pleasure, and we cut it together, and we had to drop all these great parts, but it came together really, really well. And I, I just remember going, like, what an unfair position we had put you in. And then, like, to hear that you rode on the plane and, like, anticipated making it your own, like it sounds like you did on Mad Men, too. Go ahead. Well, I, I didn't I, I didn't write uh, alternate lines on Mad Men, but I, I wrote subtext, just like, where is this coming from and stuff. But okay. as a comedian, when I read your script, I go, I know exactly. You don't have to do anything to uh, help me get angry. Yeah. yeah. When a comedian is on and his dick is coming on to take my job that I've had, and this means I got to go back to fucking cruise ships, that's all I need. Yeah, that's all I need to get angry. Like, this is my bread and butter, and this fucking you know pasty fucking dork. Yes, knows Sarah Silverman. So I was my fucking job. Fuck yeah. you, and fuck the crowd, and fuck everybody. It's, it's real easy to get there. Oh sure, <laughs> it, that script was based on what I was worried Paul Mercurio thought I was doing when I would go to the Daily Show because they needed someone to be there when he wasn't there, and that's the God's honest truth because he would miss days. So they were looking for an alternate, but like my being there, he wasn't going to let it freak him out. I was going to say it was going to freak him out. He would incorporate me. He would rip on me. He would go out of his way to show that it was his house and I'm just some weird doughy Lithuanian. And then I was like, what if this guy had a meltdown and I took over? That, that's sort of the genesis of the episode. It's doing- interesting. I'm glad you didn't tell me about Mercurio because I would have had him in my head. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was a smart move. Not yeah. Not to withhold to withhold information. You got to withhold. You can say, "Oh, this is ba- just so you know, Alan. This is based on Paul Mercurio." I don't want to fucking hear that. Well, it was based on a paranoid fantasy. I worried about Paul. It it really had nothing to do with anything he ever did or said. It was just right. Me. But still, to have that yeah. name in my head, absolutely. And Paul's That's a great, great guy. In case he hears this, and he was a great warm up. Oh yeah, yeah. Paul, I like Paul Mercurio. He said really uh, bad karma on the subway. Other than that, well, what do you mean? Oh, if you talk to Paul, just next time you talk to Paul, uh, tell me about some of your subway stories. That's all. That's all I'll say. Constantly I'll, getting harassed on the subway. I think he just runs into bad luck on the subway. And I, <laughs> he was he was telling a story about <laughs> what happened on the subway, and I let him finish the story. He said, "You've had bad luck on the subway, don't you?" And he started laughing, you know, because. <laughs> uh, well, that was my time with with John Stewart, which, by the way, um want to talk about a class act. Like I I could tell you lots of stories. There I am the lowest guy in the totem pole. And worse than that, you're sort of the the white blood cell with all the red blood cells. Like you're right. You don't work there. You're a guest on the stage. It's this weird. So uncomfortable. And he really did go out of his way to like talk to me and say, thank you. When I would pass off the mic. And then when I got my talk show, Years and years later, he was on the pilot, like or, or like the first couple episodes. He like I did interviewed him again on that stage and just like went out of his way 
What a sweetheart. Tell he's me about your G. time with him. He's a uh, square well, G. Yeah. That's from uh, Miller's crossing. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, when I was at the 23rd street, uh, doing, uh, my old talk show on the comedy channel for my third season, there was a stipulation that if I were sick or couldn't make a show that John Stewart would fill in as guest host. Oh, wow. I was so healthy that year. There was no, I immediately thought of Wally Pip, you know, getting out of the Yankee lineup. And they, so they put in this guy, Lou Gehrig. Um, you, I, your nightmare was getting the flu and turning on the TV. I and, was not, and they would John, realize. John Stewart was not going to get on my show. He was not going to host my show because this, he was funny, charming, smart. In fact, he asked me for a writing job around this period. And I said, John, first of all, I didn't like to hire standups because they saved the best lines for themselves. Hilarious. I said, John, you're going to have your own show one of these days. This isn't, this is not the road you want to go down. I know you need money. You need a gig. Trust me. I go, wow. you're going to, you're going to have a career. And how much later did he, did two, he break? Two years, a couple yeah. years, two or three and years. He know? did a, he had a John Stewart show, didn't he? He had his, yeah, he had like short attention span theater there that he hosted yeah. and he was, he's really good and he's a nice guy and women loved him. Yeah. You know, no, I remember J- dreamy John Stewart, John Stewart's still dreamy, but like, he's got like the intellectual dreamy thing going. He used to be just like a leather jacket, regular off the rack, babe. You mean he's grown as a human being? Is that what you mean? Because that's what happens to most people. They get older and they work, they grow and they become interested in more things like picking up a book and reading it in three days. When you read this book, you will not think I'm very uh, smart. I, I still um, got to get through Ian Fleming, but uh, I'll get around. <laughs> this will be the book you read to cleanse your palate after Ian Fleming. I'm telling you, it's okay. incredible. You're going to love it. But you and he would would bang around the cellar. I mean, I'm just tell me a story. Tell me whatever comes to mind. You were in a very golden time, sort of before stand up was as sexy as it became in the mid 2000s. So but lucky. Like, I know. I mean, first of all, I was born in 54. Okay. Too young for Vietnam, too old for punk. So I didn't have to uh, be in a foxhole or wear a mohawk. Um, (laughs) So that's first. Then I get in New York and start getting in stand up in 81. Right. Right before it starts. Yeah. Starts to take off. So that's, you know, just pure luck. You're there for the beginning of the first bubble. You've been through two bubbles. Yeah. We're still in the second bubble. The second bubble's lasting like twenty years. <laughs> no, this is I. This is the fifth bubble. There's a lot of bubbles out. Oh, there. really? Tell me. Why am I telling you how many bubbles? Tell me no, about I'm the not, bubbles. Anyway, I'm I'm in that first bubble, and you know, I come up and stuff, and I start working the cellar, and in, and I see all these guys come in: Chris Rock, Chappelle, Stewart, uh, Ray Romano, all these guys, Colin Quinn. I'm already a working comedian when these guys came in. Wow. And so with those guys and the guys who were ahead of me, like Don Marrera, who was maybe three months ahead of me, but had the seasoning of a like a five-year veteran. And of wow. course, I see Seinfeld and Larry Miller and Carol Leifer. And I was just around so many good comedians. And how and it, into it were they? Ray had just started? Seinfeld yeah, had just started? I, I guess Ray, I, I forget when Ray came in, but uh, you know. You were I seeing want, them at the beginning. Yes, I saw all these guys at the beginning and watched them grow. Wow. And then I moved to L.A. and I come back 
And a lot of the young comedians in the last 20, 25 years, when I'd come back from LA, I could see the ones that were improving and working. You could tell the people who were working on their craft. Yeah. And you could look at a few people that were kind of just coasting and counting on their charm. And the ones who have been working at it are better comedians. It really comes down to work. You're in the documentary, (laughs) bless you, the, the documentary comedian. And there's that moment where Quinn says to Seinfeld, he's like, most of us, I think he's self-deprecating too much, but he's like, most of us realize you could sort of get, get away with it, putting in very little effort. Yeah. And you and I both know there's a lot of guys do the same. It's an LA stereotype, but it happens in New York too. You have the same 15 and you're really. With the same 45 on the road. Exactly. You know. And you're really doing it. Correct me. Well, I'd love to know your thoughts, but my feelings was like, these guys like the lifestyle. It's like some pirates got into pirating because we really wanted to find buried treasure. Some pirates got into pirating because they loved flowing shirts. Uh, they loved uh, rum. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, but could- those pirates became the village people. You know, there's <laughs> pirates go, a, go in different ways. I mean, once you're on a flowing shirt and you're tired of pillaging and raping, you think, I want to open up a floral shop or I want to go into musical comedy, you know, (laughs) which is which is on par with being a pirate sometimes. But it's it's all fear. It's guys that don't, you know, and people have gone on me a little bit. Oh, it's the same as you you use stuff you used 30 years ago. Yeah, but I only drop it in when it works or when it counts. Yeah. I think another thing to help, too, is like I did five Letterman's on NBC and five Letterman's on CBS. And in between, like after the first 10 years, I I was in comedy, I did a couple HBO specials. So you learn how to write, you know, keep your material fresh. And I still try to do that. Although it's the hardest thing to do is to keep it fresh and going. And because it's tempting to eat hummus, uh, meet, meet uh, members of the opposite sex or whatever you're, you're into. Same sex. Pete, anyone. That's what I'm saying. I try or to meet make yourself like, holy, holy cow. I'm a woman too. I'm a sure. Kid. Discover yourself. Yeah. Drink, drink liquor and, and sort of enjoy not having a job, whatever that might mean. Um, well, you have and, a job though. It is your job to be a comedian, but I know what you mean. I but know you, you feel mean. that way. And when I came to New York, it was 2004. So wow. It's way, really? It's a, it's a very different scene. Yeah. 2004. So you had to come in with a ton of comedians in your way. I did have a ton of comedians, but you know what wasn't different? I I would wager that it's the same percentage that we're looking at it like this is a serious job. And, yeah. it, and it was the people that you would think. John Mulaney, my, my first good comedy friend in New York, the, the thing I was drawn to and the reason we became friends was because we were fucking dorks for the work. He had already gone through his uh, partying phase when he was very young. So he was sober. That's lucky. I, I Exactly. I was religious. I was also newly divorced. So someone said something similar to me. They were like, you even got that out of the way. <laughs> like now you can, right. now you can, you can do, do divorce this. jokes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. you can, you know, your bitterness would come out in that smiley, doughy face of yours. Exactly. And I had no idea. All I was was dough, and then I started to find what was beneath the dough because of of that suffering. But we used to get together. We had an office on 23rd Street, 23rd and 7th, right above the Radio Shack, was our little comedy office. Really? 
and the and the dudes that like were like, let's we were inspired. Seinfeld and comedian said, I watched a construction worker going to work and I had an epiphany. That guy doesn't want to go to work, but there he is hauling his ass in. And he's like, right. if he can after be lunch, after lunch. That's right. Yeah. He's like, if he can do it, I can do it. And then we started doing like, I know I don't have a spot tonight. I know I don't have an audition, but I'm going to go in the office. And a lot of time it was bullshitting and whatever, but like, at least I did something. That's a Larry David thing. You have to have somewhere to go where you do something that you don't do at home. Well, if you can afford an office, it's great. Dude, it was two. The fact that you, yeah, yeah. Well, the fact that, and even if you're sitting around with Mulaney and you're bullshitting, something's going to come up. Well, that's the gift, right? Not, not that you did it every day, but I'm sure there were days that you were at home going, you know, just writing and, you know, thinking of stuff and nothing comes that's out. Right. But if you st- still go back and st- keep plowing that field and just, let yourself relax and get into it. You come up with great lines. That's you know? right. And like you writing on the plane, the things that are kicking around your subconscious, you get around the right other pirates. You start talking like a pirate. You start hearing how funny they are. And it starts coming out quicker because the pace of the conversation might be fast. So it's almost like talking to an audience. You have to get their attention and like say it in a funny way. And then you write it down. But some of the pirates uh, are kind of hacky. They're hacky pirates. They I mean, swing over to the boat at the wrong time. <laughs> they put the they put the knife between their teeth the wrong way, so it cuts them. You know, you got to put the <laughs> blade the out. Parrot. We're not doing the parrot anymore. I've learned We're not so doing much parrots. from bad. We're not doing peg legs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've learned so much from bad comedians <laughs> over the years. You've learned. Oh yeah, I, I you yeah. know. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, Take have you ever? Note. If, if, like there was a club in uh, the original improv in Irvine, which is a pretty, it was a pretty big club, not as big as the one they have now, but this guy was getting introduced and I saw him get up and he said his name and he walked the whole length to the stage and got on. They had already stopped applauding. And so he walks up kind of grabs a mic. Oh, so what else? And I was like, What? And he goes, yeah, my yeah. stuff's not going yeah. well. I said, dude, you you want to be on stage, comfortable, mic in the right spot when they're finished applauding. You and of that way you, you don't go up there during dead air, you know. And I see guys That's sauntering right. on. You know, you don't have to run up there and jump around, but be in your spot by the time the applause stops. It's basic comedy one hundred and one. And so it many comedians basic. don't and, do and that. Put, put the what? stand behind you too is another one. Put the mic stand behind you. Or leave it up if that's what you want to do. You know, leave it. Leave sure, it sure. But make a choice. Yes, make a choice. Can we have Maybe. a choice? Uh, when I would go on the road back in the day, uh, I middled for a few months and then I stopped and waited till I headlined. Uh, the, usually a club owner or the club secretary or a waitress would pick you up at the airport. And I said, do we have time to go by the club? And they said, why? I go, I just want to look at it. So we'd go and they'd have the keys or it would be open. And I'd go up and I'd stand on the stage and look around. I go, could you put the lights on uh, the way they would be on a performance? Like, got it. So I, in my mind now, I go back to the hotel, take a nap, start prep. I have a mental picture of where I'm standing. Now I got that from studying theater, Florida State and Miami-Dade. That was basic stuff. And people go, why do you want to go to the club for? 
And I know comedians that the yeah. girl club, they don't even I, look out. It, 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 are you kidding me? Well, you're, you're planning to fail. I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. It, it's not only seeing it practically, but it gives you a space to visualize doing well because the fucked up thing, or it's not really fucked up, but the sort of difficult thing about being a comedian is going a place you've never been and acting like you own the place. <laughs> yeah. You got to be comfortable up there. You can't be looking around like, Oh, wow. I didn't see that plant. You're bumping in the walls. You know, where did that stuff, you know, if there's a stuffed moose head on the wall, that's right. You see it. And then you go, uh, there was a play at Largo. They had these antlers off to the right of the stage. It looked like tiny antlers. You know, there were, it was like the smallest deer someone had bagged. So I looked over and go, who was the macho guy that took that deer down? Huh? That was like two (laughs) minutes right there, but he probably gave him a good talking to and brought him to his knees. You know, little things like that. I, I've worked yeah. with a comedian once who was MC. He goes, oh, I didn't realize the crowd, the room went back that far. Yeah. And I go, really? So you just came straight to the dressing room or the green room and just went out there and, you know, and you're going to be the MC. Yeah. It's well, uh, That's the other thing is that when you're starting and you're the MC, you have to act like it's your place the most and you're the least comfortable. You're the you host to- of the party. I know, and and it's the hardest to be the host when you're so scared about how do I go from these announcements into my RoboCop opener. Like, it's really difficult. Yeah, it, well, it's a difficult job. But here's here's an interesting dynamic that's happened in comedy since 1981, and I saw this change toward the late 80s. Um, the MC used to be a prestigious job in New York at the Improv or Catch. Yeah. And... Uh, and on the road and in clubs, people look at it like it's the, you're the little man on the totem pole. Yeah. Your job, you're the host. It's your party. It's your show. And I've, so many MCs say they do their 10 minutes up front and go, okay, that's my time. I mean, no, no, you're coming that's right. back. That's right. So if you say that's my time, when you come back, they don't give a shit. Oh, that's you're, right. it's you, you've already done your time. You know, so you got, uh, MCs don't realize it, but they're very, very important to the show. I I totally agree. You know, there was a club in Milwaukee called the Comedy Cafe where they would do something that I'm I'm putting this out there. If if anybody hears this, anybody running any shows, they would have someone go up, get the crowd quiet, just like, hello, hi, everybody. Are you guys ready for a great show? And then they'd introduce the MC. Right. It made... Because I was the MC, right? It made a ten thousand percent difference. Like I killed because suddenly I was a special guest. Instead right. of they think you're the door guy, they think you're just like the nephew of the owner or something. But just like so, if I was hosting again, if I was going out on the road, what is the big deal of asking the club? Can you send someone up on stage that says hi, hello, hello and then bring me up? Because that makes a huge difference. Or just have a voice in the back of the room. Hi, welcome to the club tonight. We're glad you're here. They do that. Uh, It's not the same. I want another body up there. I I want another body. Well, you're a pussy. Um, (laughs) You don't need another body up there. But, you know, you're right. Uh, I would uh, open at the bottom line in front of uh, different musical acts. Oh, wow. And they go, okay. And they'd bring down the lights. and, Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome me to Alan Havy. Nobody heard it. 
all of a sudden you're just standing there. I say, yeah. hey, everybody, welcome to the bottom line. You ready for a good show? Okay, we've got a great comedian for you. Please welcome me, uh, Alan Haiti. And then I yeah. just stand there. And then, oh, you get a laugh. So I introduce myself. There it's you go. Kind of, it's a kind of a hacky device, but it worked during those grueling Jersey Club days. That's not a hacky device. That's the the clearest example of what I think the dysfunction or the wound that makes a stand-up, which is like, I felt like life was unideal circumstances, life so I am going to use my humor to make them better. <laughs> that's what I feel okay. like. Yeah. That's what I feel like stand-ups are. So you, I don't feel it's hacky. Let me ask you this. You're in the 80s. I wasn't there. Um, I see the footage. You weren't there in the 90s either. I mean, I wasn't doing stand-up in the 90s. No, I started. No, no I know you were alive, but. I, I started in 2001. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. God, i Technically 2000, because I did it a handful of times in Boston. But um, <laughs> I know, dude. I feel the same way. You've been uh, doing it 20 years. And believe me, there's so much more to learn. I, I Isn't that great? It's like golf yeah, or racquetball. No. Yeah, it's, it, I would say golf mostly. Racquetball, you just yeah. don't want to get hit in the back. <laughs> uh, I'd say it's probably very similar to the little golf I played. And I've watched. I, I've never... I've never played, but yes, it's one of those lifelong things. I'm happy to hear you say that. It means oh, a lot yeah. coming. And you can keep your left arm straight and still knock the ball into the water. So, you know, it doesn't always work. That's right. Uh, that's what makes it infinitely interesting, right? I mean, I think that's what keeps guys interest engaged. Yeah. If it, if you could figure it out and it will always work, it stops. It stops being a thing. It's no longer a thing. Even Dave Chappelle is going, I hope this goes well. Yeah. I know he, yeah. he, he he's hiding it. I, I don't even mean he's well, hiding no, it. We, we, he's we, compartmentalizing we, it. You can't go out there and go, hi, everybody. You can't be tentative unless that's your yeah. hook. Unless you're, you know, right. Tommy tentative. Oh, I like this guy. Right. He's not sure of himself, you know, or whatever. Uh, right. Right. Comedian, and I won't mention his name. Is at the Comedy Cellar table. And I wasn't working that night for whatever reason. And I was having a martini, a gin martini, which kind of makes you mean. <laughs> that's, no, that's been proven scientifically. I love it. Uh, I wrote an article in the Times, so I know what I'm talking about. Um, and this comedian said, I figured out comedy. I've been doing it 30 years. I know what works. And I just put my drink down and went, ha, 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 ha. And the whole friggin' restaurant looked at me. I didn't realize how loud it was being. <laughs> and later on, I apologized to him. Oh, my God. But I, here's what I told him. I said, nobody knows comedy. Nobody. Not Woody Allen, not Mel Brooks. Yes. Not David Tell. You think of the best comedian, or you know, Carl Reiner. They've all come out with crappy movies from time to time. Or yeah. jokes bomb. That's the, the thing. The killing thing about stand-up is it doesn't matter how many good, good sets you've had in the past. You can always have a bad set. You can always go out there and fuck up. And the beauty of it, you tell me what this makes you think of. To me, I have this with this podcast. If I have an interview or a conversation and it just doesn't get there, the next one is always fantastic. So I can be doing two sets in a night. If I have a rough one at right. the Village Underground, I go back and win it back at the cellar. Yeah. You have to. Yeah, And yeah. that's what people don't seem to understand or what I struggle to understand about life is that the suffering is part of it. It informs 
the other, it informs everything. And it's, and it's a flux. It's always got to go up and down, up and down. That's what it is. And, and that's what stand-up is. And sometimes you can figure it out, but most times you can't. Absolutely. Because it's, it's, you just got to keep going forward. And that's a great thing about a Friday or Saturday night in New York. It's like uh, I've done five, six sets a night for many years. I, I worked when I flew back, Esty would put me on just about every show. Wow. So I had plenty of time to play, plenty of time to experiment. And, but the main thing was I wanted to have a good set, you know? That's right. So you have that standard and that's why guys lock into that 45 minutes or 20 minutes of material that definitely works. They're afraid to get out of that because you always want to do well. It's your ego. It's fear. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of things. But what I find sobering specifically about what you're saying, if you're doing four sets, five, six sets at the cellar, you can have that line that kills. It's this opening line and you say it and it works. Then you do it the mm-hmm. next show and it works again. And then you do it the third show and for some reason it doesn't work. And that's why stand-up is the infinite puzzle that can always be like life, unwinnable and always interesting. Hopefully. Yeah. Stand-up is like life, only more magnified. Yeah, that's right. That's what I'm thinking. You know, when it's, when it's great, it's fantastic. But when it's painful, it's a little bit more painful than life, unless it's a death in the family. I completely agree. I, Kumail uh, did this podcast recently and I was telling him we started together and I was telling him that I bombed one so hard. He used to smoke. I bummed a cigarette from him and he was surprised. And I said, that was so bad. I want part of me to die. (laughs) That's how sad I was. I was so sad. I mean, bombing. When I got divorced, my wife cheated. It's like crashing. She had an affair. She left me. That felt like bombing for a long time, but it was the same feeling. You know what yeah, I mean? It was the same sort of, mm-hmm. ugh, everything's uh-huh. wrong. Like, it's, yeah. it's the same feeling. But the thing is, with stand-up... That was my chair. I didn't fart. I don't care. What are you, 12? <laughs> There's See? other people listening. You have no, to reproduce the sound or... or oh, really? Okay, Or that's no one right. believes you. That's right. You have a popular podcast. I'm, I'm really glad I'm on here. People are listening, uh, I hope. Okay, the improv used to be on 44th Street in New York. Yeah. Right? There were nights I came out of there. I walked off the stage, out the exit door that was right next to the stage. I didn't even want to go back to the bar. Wow. And if there had been a guy in, like, driving a steamroller. (laughs) He would have rolled under it? I would have happily. Yes. And without a doubt, dove in front of it and just kill me. Kill me. Yeah. There's that line Orny Adams says in Comedian where he goes, I didn't know pain until I started doing stand-up. And I was like, I relate to that, especially because I was doing stand-up for many years before my divorce. That was my introduction. It's like elective pain. Like you sign, it's, it's yeah, like athletics. I, I had embarrassed and humiliated myself many, many times before I got into stand-up. So <laughs> it, I, was, I was not a stranger to it, but I've never built an immunity to it. I don't think you can. I think as soon as you do, you wouldn't be funny anymore. Because there are guys that I know that I've seen that really are or appear to be fearless to the point where you wonder if something's wrong with their brain. And they're up there and they really don't care. Not the fun don't care, but they really stopped caring. And then they become sort of masochistic where they start playing games of like, well, how bad can I do uh, just to fuck with them or whatever? And I'm like, 
I, I don't want to be that immune. I want to sweat. I want my the back, the small of my back to sweat. And I want my mouth to get dry because it's like when you, then when you have the good set, you go, that was amazing. And the last time I went in that lion's den, the lions tore me to shreds. That's what makes it the, the yeah. good one. Good. There was a night I, I was at the improv. This is right when I get out here about 97, 98 and I'm on stage and I'm having a set and it's going okay, but it's not great. I'm not doing that well. And so I'm working, I'm, you know, bobbing, weaving, pulling out material, riffing. And I'm thinking, wow, I can't feel any sweat on my back. My face isn't sweating. Wow. I'm, I'm accepting that it's not going well. And I'm trying my best. And I felt very mature. <laughs> and I walk out, I sit in the stool of the bar and I hear squish. It all went to my balls. It, <laughs> it, it was, you know, all the flop set a flop sweat went right to my balls and just it was like an old tennis ball you leave out in the yard during the rain you know, went, what what the hell is that i thought it was bleeding i went to I, my ball sweat was just running down my legs it all oh not on my face God. not down my back you know it usually happens yes my pits were dry as a bone oh my Squish. god oh so, my god i felt you- so happy your body was like, we're going to do this. We're just yeah. going to do it in a new way. Yes. <laughs> you you stay as cool as you want, buddy. You're bombing, and we're heading right to your balls. It's funny that I'm going to tell you this story because I, I want you to speak to the fragility of stand-up confidence, if that means anything to you. Because when you said the improv, I remember I went with Moshe to the improv, and he was on, and I wasn't. And was I, I walked improv? in. Hollywood improv. Right. And I walked in and there was a new door guy and he didn't know me. And I walked in past him and I went in the showroom and he followed me and he grabbed me by the shoulder. And he was like, what are you doing? What, who are you? You can't walk in here like this. And I went from a hundred to zero. And the reason I've told that story a couple times on this podcast is I think it's so interesting that it's not an act, but the confidence is just part of our, of what's going on. That's why I'm saying Chappelle is still going like, I hope this works. There's still some fragility in there. Why do you think we developed the personality to deal with this unbearable reality that we did? It's because there's something small and fragile in there. What does that make you think of? Uh, Well, I I look at uh, comedian psyche as made of rice paper and milk glass. Very fragile. (laughs) And that combination, because I have a globe on my desk that's behind my computer right now. That I get it's from the fifties and it in a lights inside it's made of rice paper very like and milk glass is very thin mm. and very and I don't care if you're on stage and you're killing there could be a moment that happens and it all goes away yes and that's one of the reasons I want to have a a a, a solid end of my stand up career like I don't want it to get to a point where all I can work is cruise ships. Or, you know, uh, I'm on stage and people come up and have to lead me off because I forgot my joke. You know, <laughs> I I, I want to go out strong, but it's the vulnerability, vulnerability. Am I saying that right? Vulnerability, sure. Thank you, vulnerability. Uh, it is a word. I'm even nervous say- talking about it. But you know, <laughs> I just talked about bombing. Just I swear to God, thinking about it. No, I know. Gets, gets me tongue tied. Uh, well, they're traumatic experiences. I still remember yeah. faces from crowds where I was bombing. Like I, they're oh, burned God. in my oh. memory. Oh yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. No uh, comments people made not to you, but going by that you overhear accidentally. That's what Bill Burr said to me. He was at the comedy connection in Providence and he heard someone say that redheaded guy sucked and he's still talking about it. Yeah. The guy- <laughs> No, yeah, you know what I mean? It stays with you. It does. Yeah. It's, it's like, uh, I forget the picture uh, that said this, but the, the pain of losing is greater than the joy of winning. Wow. You don't have, you know, when you bomb, you remember it a lot more. But another article I read in the New York Times is that your brain hangs on to bad moments in your life to teach you to, to re, so that you remember not to do it again or to as a warning. So oh, wow. it's not people that are always thinking negative. It's not like, Oh, comedians always talk about when they bomb or they remember that more. That's the way your brain operates for anybody. Yeah. That yeah. we say this on the show a lot, but if someone gives you a compliment, you have to sit with it for 15 seconds to give it the same chance as someone saying the redheaded guy sucked that goes in right away. But if I say, Bill Burr, you're a legend, if he really wants it, he has to sit with it and consider it for 15 seconds. That's how the brain works. Well, and it's bad for a comedian to uh, accept that. Like, oh, of course. yeah, I'm, I'm a legend. That's right. You ever get that intro? Alan, this next guy oh. is the funniest guy I've oh, ever fucking oh, seen. He's the, the worst, king. The worst. The worst. <laughs> hey, here's the guy you paid all the money to see. Oh, I was emceeing for Richard Lewis, and I was like, this guy's the headliner. He's a legend. And he was like, just say, ladies and gentlemen, Richard Lewis. Yes. And he was right. I was like, why don't you want me to buff you up? Because nobody wants that expectation. That sucks. I hate no. it. There's uh, one guy, one time a guy said, and it's a compliment, but you don't want to they say, wait till you see this guy. I know. If you, if you think you've laughed in your life, wait till you see this guy. And they're like, Get- one of the ingredients of comedy, I would say, is to get them to forget that you're trying to make them laugh. So if somebody brings up money, this is the guy you paid to see. Yeah. You're, you're already on the defensive. You think you've laughed. I want them to forget that I'm there to make them laugh. <laughs> That's so important to me. Low self-esteem really works for comedians sometimes. <laughs> I want them. Well, I want them to specifically think. This is what makes me laugh. If you want to join me, I'm having a better time than you. That's my perspective. If it works for you. (laughs) I'm not there to twist your arm into being like, this is funny. This is funny. I'm going, I'm going to have a good time with you or without you. It's like going to an audition. You got to be relaxed, loose, know your material. Tell me a little bit about that. I'm fascinated. You got a Cohen, bro. You're on Hail in Hail Caesar. You had to audition for the Cohen brothers? Yeah. Here here's an interesting story. Okay. This is this is how you work it. Let me show you the <laughs> let me tell this little tidbit. I can't wait. I'm in Vegas. I'm working at the improv there. Uh I have a lunch with my former manager and, and uh well I can say it now, Mark Lano. Okay. You know who Mark is? Nope. He's one of the original owners of the improv. And he, we're having lunch, and he said, hey, how was Matt Weiner in the audition process? And I said, oh, Matt was great. He's very empathetic to actors. He, you, know, he, he, you know, he lets you work it out and stuff like that. He, he takes his time. And uh, he said, yeah, my uh, son-in-law just uh, auditioned for the Coen brothers. And he said they were the same way. I go, oh, that's great. Ten minutes, not even ten paces after I walk away from that lunch, I whip out my phone call my manager and say, uh, there's a Coen Brothers movie they're casting. Get me in on it. 
She goes, I think we submitted you for that. I said, submit me again, call the assistant. Tell, I don't care if I go on with her, just put me on tape. I have to get in that door. Wow. Should you call back a couple of days later? Yeah, the uh, assistant cast director will put you on tape. I'll go, great. So I get the scene, and it's this minister at a table with a rabbi, a, a Greek guy, and a Catholic priest. So I sit down, and I write out who this guy is. I work on it like, you know, I'm going to perform it at Carnegie Hall. And I'm looking, it's, it's in Hollywood in 1951. I said, so this guy, he was probably a chaplain. Went to the South Pacific, came back, loved the weather in L.A., and moved his life out from Georgia. Because I know the Coen brothers kind of like character, uh, yeah. like characters. So I gave him a little Southern accent. And it, even if it sounds a little fake, preachers do that anyway. So just yeah. go with this. Yeah. So that's what I put on tape. And then uh, I went in an audition for the Coen brothers. And they were great. And I was relaxed. And I didn't drop the accent. When you and, were just chatting with him. Yeah. They said, you could have been a little harsher to the rabbi. I said, well, um, his people killed Christ. So I got to be especially kind to them. And they cracked up. Oh my God. They go, they go, you have a, they said, well, you probably have a great congregation. They go, you gentlemen are welcome anytime. <laughs> and then I, and I left the, uh, left the room. I said, well, there'll be anything else. They said, no, thank you. And so I not left. only did you not, not do the voice, but you also kind of stayed in character. Yeah, I, I kind of stayed, kind of stayed in character. They knew still, what you were doing, but yes, still. They, they knew what I was doing. And uh, about a week later, I got a call and said, you, you booked it. Wow. And how- Another dream come true. Now, let's flash back to when I first saw Blood Simple, their first movie. In 86, I go, after that movie, I go, God, I want to work with these guys. Mm. And yeah. it, it only took me about 30 years, but I did. I- <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, I, it's the only time I auditioned for them, and I got the part. So, what was it like on set? What, what were great. they? Yeah, tell me. Worked with Josh Brolin and the uh, the DP um, Roger Deakins, great director of photography, was there. They had one camera. They kind of took their time, and I had read an interview with one uh, camera. Yeah, one camera. Why? Uh, that's what. That's all they needed. Uh, Wait, uh, they shot a couple master shots and did close-ups of everybody. We got there at like seven, started shooting at eight o'clock, got out of there about three thirty. It was very efficient. It, it, it just seems to me like if you have more than one person, why not throw another camera in there? Get well, if you want to mention that to the Cohen brothers, you go right ahead. Well, the I reason- they, they know what they're doing. <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna, I, like I'm going to go up. And go, hey guys, how come there's only one camera here? I want to know. You know why? Because I'm sure they have a brilliant answer. Yeah, because it's Roger Deakins, and he knows what he's doing. And I want to know what Roger Deakins knows. We're not in any hurry. And we had rehearsed the day before. Okay. Without camera. So we all knew what was going on. But getting back to this interview with Ethan Cohen, he said, in this interview already, he goes, the interviewer said, "Um, what do you talk to on set uh, about to an actor? What do you say to an actor on set? And he says, if I'm talking to an actor on set too much, I've cast the wrong actor. They want to get out of the way. They just want you to do your job. You come in with the character. You've got it. They've cast you. What's my motivation here? Was this one time they tweaked my performance up a little bit on one line. That was it. I did it. They didn't come over and say, great job. They just move on. Yeah. Josh Brolin, uh, who 
played the studio head in the scene was great. After he did a scene with everybody, a close-up scene, he went over and just squeezed them on the shoulder. Oh, just like, Hey, good job. You know, in his way of saying good job. Wow. With the infinity gauntlet on or without it? With a what? I didn't know. I didn't think you'd get that. No, I don't watch superhero crap. (laughs) I don't watch hobbits. I I don't like flying monkeys or game of Thrones. I don't, you know, Sorry. I'm sure you loved Planet of the Apes, Alan. There's no yeah, way. I, yeah, I was 14. I loved <laughs> Planet of the Apes. Well played, good sir. Well I li- played. I like reality. Tell, well, this is what I was going to ask you about the 80s, okay? Uh, I, I used to buy the evening at the improvs on VHS. This is like right when eBay was <laughs> that's, new. That's so sad. Go ahead. I know. I didn't know how sad it was. This is like B, like, cause they'd have Seinfeld on the box. And then the clip would be just like you and I, someone's like, we filmed that. Can we use it? And you say, you can use the beginning when I'm just bullshitting, but you can't right. use the material. So it's just Seinfeld going like evening at the improv. Is it really clear that it's evening or whatever? <laughs> it's, it's like, it's nothing. Yeah. And I'm like, I bought this for $12 for five seconds of Jerry and then you get like, you know, five seconds of everybody. So anyway, what I want to know is the eighties seemed like this heyday of, of Santa, of everybody smoking, everybody has perms and faded sunglasses and stuff, but like were audiences sophisticated, like did they know how to be good audiences yet? Or yeah. was it sort of wild? Sure. It's, it, it depends what you feed them. If you take someone to McDonald's, and you give them, you know, buy them a meal. Hey, this is good. It's a burger. I'll eat that. If you take them to a really good restaurant, they're going to go, holy shit, this is really good. Depends on what you feed your audience. Yeah. I've seen, and that's a great thing about the comedy seller. You'll see comedians are a little bit goofier. I mean, and some who are more cerebral, some uh, who like hammer at home a little bit, other comedians that are subtle. Audiences they have a lot of different tastes in comedy. There's so many different ways to make people laugh. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's, it's such a great art form. But the only part part about that VHS sad was the the VHS. They're just kind of sad. Ah! I mean, aren't they, even though I came up during that day and I used to have VHS tapes of movies and stuff, I go, now I look at VHS tapes and go, this is sad. It is sad. Yeah. You can see a great movie on VHS and you're like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry this happened to you. I remember On the Waterfront came out on VHS. And my <laughs> roommate had it and I had to move it because it was on the table. And I go, that's a sin that I can pick up a great classic film and just move it so I can pick up a joint. Ah! You know, I you mean. Know the Irishman came out on VHS. Seven tapes. <laughs> Well, it was you know when uh, De Niro was beating up that guy. That is, that I guy have a bit about him. that. Do you? I did it. Well, well, the week well, it let, came let out. me tell you. Let me tell you what my take is. He looks like Frankenstein trying to put out a cigarette. That's that. Well, what you did was a real bit. I just did an impression of it. Mm-hmm. I did it on Conan because he he's so stiff. Like it's not De Niro's fault. It's like. Why is he playing young him? It just seemed like a strange choice. 
And when he pulled him over the counter, he pulls the guy over the counter. The guy is like lunging forward. He's like yeah. leaping to make it possible. <laughs> yeah, I, you I know, DeMero might... said, hey, you got to help me here, pal. Of course. I'm, I'm supposed to be 33. You got to help me. When you see I when think, you see Pesci climbing the stairs after he comes home with like a bloody shirt, yeah, he goes up the stairs. He's reaching up the banister and he's yanking. Yeah, it's he's, a yank. He's yanking to get up there. It's a yank. Well, see, I, Nero didn't do the work. You mean the, he should have the physical work? It, it, Raging Bull, sure. You know, he was thirty five, thirty six. He needed to be flexible. They needed to have a guy, a yoga guy there. Not that he had to be a yoga master, but you got to you got to stay loose. I, I, it's interesting that you and it's say, hard at his age, I guess. I, I think, I think you might be right. I mean, like there could have been something he did. I don't know. Here I, don't I am know putting down like. one of the greatest actors in the world. De Niro didn't do the work. What an arrogant fuck. I am. Well, De Niro also wouldn't let them put the dots on his face so they could make him look 33. He refused that. So he might be at a point in his career where he's like, Fuck it, I'm not doing yoga and you're not putting dots on my face. Right. Even if both of those things would make the movie. Do you see the kid bit. that made everybody younger on his home computer? No. Some kid on his home computer took the, uh, the movie and made him look even better just by using whatever he had on his iPad. There's a YouTube channel that does that where they try to beat special effects and I love it. And they and, do it all the time. Yeah, and so they, they spent so much time and money in post-production that. on that. Yeah, it's out there. I, I'm going to Did you it, like the I, movie overall? I turned it off. Did I didn't you? Like it. Yeah, I didn't like it. I, I liked I, it, but not as much as some people did. I'm going to concede this, though, Havy, because I, I, feel, I feel like anybody writing a review of a movie should start with a couple pages about where they are, what it means to them emotionally before <laughs> they even put it on. Because when I watched it, I was like, it just reminded me of how my dad loves Goodfellas so much. So I'm already going at it like this is like my dad's porn, basically. I don't, I don't like this. It, it makes me feel small and insignificant. And so, like, I wasn't watching it with clear eyes. Wow, that you know what this is? This is a very special Pete Holmes podcast. <laughs> this is very sensitive, Pete Holmes. This is run of the mill, baby. You know, like they they show different strokes. Get ready this Thursday for a very special different strokes. And at the end, I come on as myself and say, "We talked a lot about a difficult subject here, but I want to reiterate, I'm not racist." <laughs> like yeah. they would do that. They would have the actors be like, "We're right. friends in real life. I'm playing a character." Mm-hmm. That's how unsavvy. That's why I ask you about the audiences in the same era that TV had to be like. Remember, folks, we're actors. You were going up and doing stand-up. It had to feel different. I don't know. I, it, it, not really. No, it, it, audiences are pretty hip. I think overall, there are bad audiences. There are dumb audiences. I think, um, but ninety-nine percent, it's up to the comedian to dig your whatever the crowd is. You got to get the crowd. It just you don't have to sacrifice yourself. You yeah. still can have integrity, but there's always a way. Um, what did you just make me think of? I don't know. I can't read your mind. I know. I wish yeah. you could. It's filthy. You know, I'm starting a podcast. I'm, I'm putting it down. I'm not going to have guests on it, so it won't mess with yours. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Like Bill Burr style? What's no, I have a partner on. It's called Skip Intro. And uh, <laughs> we, we, we talk about classic movies, and we just go right into it. And, you know, 
musings about life and stuff. So Tell it'll me, be up it, in December. That's great. What what are you are you're a big film person, I'm getting the feeling. Big classic movie guy. My dad turned me on to classic movies when I was a kid. Uh old black and white. Uh I've always loved them. And, you know, contemporary movies as well. Uh my dad would wake me up like during the summer, I'd be eight years old. He'd come into my room and wake me up and go, Hey, come on, Carson's on. You know, so wow. that's that was really my my tutelage. That's and it told you that comedy mattered, right? I mean, that's yeah. how I and felt. He, here's the thing: if he had molested me, I'd be an agent today. But oh I, I would still be in show business. That's the beauty of it. <laughs> oh my let's say, God. And they so, let's say he said, "Move over and don't tell your mother." I think I'd still be in show business. <laughs> very dark. Very. Well, this very is what dark. you wanted. This is what you wanted: the salty, dark stuff. Okay. I now I'm just going like. Do we keep it in? <laughs> Do I protect Havy? No, it didn't happen. It's a joke. What's wrong with you? <laughs> you know what? Here's what happened. You have a daughter, and now you have this censor thing in your head. I do. I mean, like, yeah. things do change. As, as you should. As you should. When Steve Martin has that great line, he goes, when you're in your 20s, you make all your cancer jokes. Then people start getting cancer, you stop making cancer jokes. Right, right. I mean, like, that. that there it is true. I found that way, like, People said, go out and eat. This was a bit I used to do when we did stand-up. People were like, go out and eat when my wife was pregnant. They were like, go out to dinner now. What they should have said was, watch Handmaid's Tale now. Watch Watchmen now. Watch Mystic River now. Like, there's so many things that are just off the table once you become a, a parent, at least for me. Yeah. Like, I, I don't want to see certain things, but, you know, I, that's, I don't know. Well, I, you know, I'm very fortunate. I don't have children. <laughs> no, I, I mean, when I go out and run errands, you know, and just do the daily, you know, stuff we have to do to keep our life moving ahead, laundry yeah. or go to the bank or make sure you have this. I'm driving. I think, how do children and people do it? How, I guess they have to consolidate their time. It's like, I would imagine it's a science. It's. It's a it's a whirlwind of chaos that I, I don't even remember. Val and I say this to each other all the time. We go, what were we doing before? And that's what right. you're describing. Yes. Meeting your needs, um, entertaining yourself, having fun, long dinners. Like you're not without an argument. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm only saying that as a joke. I wouldn't trade it for anything. But I, I Once know you have you children, you can't imagine not having them. That's that's exactly what it is. And when it's you don't have children, you don't know what you're missing, and it's beautiful. It's the great Seinfeld bit. He goes, people without kids think people with kids are crazy. People with kids think people without kids are crazy, and they're both right. And I, I was well, like, I, it's a brilliant joke. Well, I know, guys, the, the, yeah, I don't see my friend anymore. What happened? He got married. I go, yeah, that happens. Life moves on. Yeah, yeah well, and since they have a kid, I go, of course not. Of course you yeah. don't see him. You might see him. You used to see him like twice a week. Then it becomes twice a month and then it becomes twice a year. That's just what happens. Yeah. You know, when yeah. people have kids. I, I'm lucky. I, I remember being a kid. And I remember what a pain in the ass it was just to have kids. <laughs> just to be the kid. Not only to be the kid, but I. Well, that's what got me into show business. Among another, a few big things that you haven't asked about. So I'll, I'll wait for the next uh, <laughs> next interview. No, just do it. Just talk about it. That's what I do. Just talk about what comes into your mind. When I was a kid, I looked around and go, this doesn't look like fun. Wow. Like being a parent. And not just my parents, but other parents and families and 
you know, guys at the parade would see, we go to the Orange Bowl parade every year and there'd be these bathing beauties and you guys would go, hey, huh? That would be, yeah, I got to get back to the wife though, you know, you know, see right. a beautiful girl. Oh, yeah, well, got to go back to the wife. Like, oh, oh, it's limiting. Being married limits you. Yeah, but you're married. Yeah, but I didn't get married till I was 53. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Why? 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 Because <laughs> there was no reason to. <laughs> There's absolutely no reason. Unless you want to have children. You know, it's funny, Pete. The way we got into comedy, and maybe you had this feeling, the way I wanted to get into show business from a very young age, that was really my goal. That was it. But there's some guys growing up, and I just, you know, I didn't realize this until I was in my 40s, that their main goal in life was to have a family. Hmm. Their, their job was secondary. They wanted a good job, of course, and maybe they had career ideas. But the, the most, the primary goal in their life was, I want to meet someone and raise a family. Mm-hmm. That was never important to me. That was never a desire of mine. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, how old were you when you first got married? 22. Yeah, but well, you wanted to get married, right? Well, it's interesting. Obviously, was we that Jesus saying, Pete, you need to get married? Well, Jesus said, you, you've you had sex. You, you're a little ahead of yourself here, maybe. Really? Um, that was part of it, for sure. But then I also look at, like, something I can't say enough on this podcast. I'll say it every time I think it, is that, like, if you're following a dream, make sure it's your dream, right? So, like, we live in a society that is consumer-based, so it sort of has an agenda to make you, this isn't everybody, but like, okay, get a job, get a family, and then that family uh, contribute to the society, buy stuff, like be, be a consumer. Like that's so important in our world that I wonder, you see it so much in movies, you see it so much in oh, TV, yeah. you see it so much in church, have a family, have a family, have a family, be a family. It's sort of a, it's an ideal of our country for sure. And I think there is children have too much power, (laughs) way too much power in this country. Yeah. That's interesting. I I mean, they, they release these crappy movies like the Alvin and the chipmunks movie, which I hear are horrible films. They make $350 million. Yeah. Because you have to take your kid, you have to take your daughter to the Teletubby movie or the, whatever she's (laughs) into. You have to take her. The parents, uh, need to say no to their children. No, we're not going to see every crappy movie that you and your friends need to see. I mean, that's what my parents said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't get this. We didn't make a lot of movies for kids, but it's a it's a, a burgeoning market and it's a billion dollar market. I'm actually my perspective is that I'm grateful that there's good Pixar movies that I also like watching. Because if she wants to watch Toy Story four, I also like Toy Story four. So right. we're kind of like in a sweet pocket. But when I was a kid, like and I the Bullwinkle, to... Bullwinkle cartoons. Were, you, were, were those for grownups too? Yeah. Well, you'd watch it, but you hear your dad laughing because they had sophisticated humor from mom and dad. And we, we loved it because it was funny too. I love that. I love yeah. that. So what else am I not asking you, Alan? What are the areas? We got Carson. Uh, gee, I don't know. <laughs> the hell, you want me to do the interview for you? You know, I want you to address the topics that you just dangled in front of me. I'm being a good interviewer. You said, because you're not asking me about this, this, and this. What were you thinking? <laughs> I, no, here, here, the reason I, okay, uh, Pete. So, Otherwise, I'm just going to ask you about God, baby. Welcome to the show. I don't care. 
I know, but tell me. I had sex and Jesus said I was going to hell. (laughs) Well, that was my Jesus too. I know that Jesus. Tell me, before we get to that, tell me about if there was an area that you were like, I bet we'll talk about this. Please be be my friend, not my guest. We've covered a lot about stand-up and stuff, but just the genesis of how I, and this is another thing. uh, When I was young, very young, a little boy, I knew exactly what I wanted to be. Yeah, I wanted to be an actor in show business. And then comedian. But I got it very early on in kindergarten. Wow. I went to Catholic school and the nuns brought in these two eighth grade boys brought in this mammoth reel to reel tape recorder and we were auditioning to play uh, one, a, a girl was going to be the nun and a boy was going to be the priest in the kindergarten graduation pageant. Mm. And so they brought in this um, tape recorder. I'm looking at this thing. We're going to record your voices on this. And I'm like, holy shit. This is like, this is show business. <laughs> this is it. Yeah. How do they get their, our voices on that brown tape? Right. You know, I, I don't understand. But all we had to do was go up to the front of the room and speak into the microphone and say your name very loudly and clearly. That's what they wanted. So I'm back in the corner, which I always sat, you know, the Jesse James seat or the Wild Bill Hickok seat. So you could see anybody coming in the door. Sure. And, uh, you know, and then they played it back and you, everybody could hear them talking, but when they played it back, I was loud and fucking clear. And everybody looked at me. I got, I nailed my first audition. (laughs) And and so, and this is 1960 children were seen and not heard. That's not just an expression. That was a philosophy. That was a living uh, work template, you know, so you never got any attention. So I played the little priest and I, I got my lines down. And then the the girl that played the nun got sick. And I knew why, because she was nervous. She started throwing up. So they had to put the outfit on another little girl. And I went up to the nun and said, you know, what? I can I can do both parts. Because I know the, the nun's lines too. So I could just go, like walk back and forth. <laughs> and they go, no, no, we're going to have a little girl play the nun. and i remember what i remember most of all these adults just looking at me and laughing and smiling and the priest came up patted me on the head and said you are almost as good as i am wow and i I, and they all laughed because it was a joke but i'm like going wow that was it it was the brolin squeeze priest edition oh my god it just god injected me with comedy heroin yeah i was always a class clown after that I remember my first joke at the table when I was a kid and uh, I know what it all went away. So it was very, what was the joke? Uh, Kennedy had been inaugurated JFK and the nuns told us to pray that he would be president. So when he was elected, we felt ownership as a kid. No, I prayed really hard for Kennedy. So he won. And my dad, there was, we were having fried chicken. My mom made great fried chicken. There was one piece left. My brother and I both wanted the piece of chicken. And my father said, okay, one of you boys can tell me what the F stands for in John F. Kennedy's name. You can have the piece of chicken. Now I knew it was Fitzgerald, but I said, Fidel. <laughs> my parents laughed so hard because, you know, Fidel Castro, my parents laughed so hard. They gave me the piece of chicken and I learned of it's better to be funny than to be right. It was like an early lesson. 
I love it. See, my technique worked. It led what, what, to these great stories. Well, no, your technique didn't work. You uh, you evaded it. No, because I was listening. I was listening to you uh, talk to uh, Oscar Nunez. I go, oh, he's going to ask me about when I was a kid. Okay, so I got to remember to tell that story. Oh, so my previous work worked for me today. Yes. Yeah. No, I do my homework, man. I don't Good go on a podcast. You. I don't know what the, you know, I don't want to be blindsided about 20 questions about Jesus. <laughs> well, here come your, here come your JC 20, as we call it. So you were raised Catholic. Yeah. And he, now here's one that all went away. On November 18th, 1963, my dad came to school, took all me and my siblings out of school and we went to the airport on this field next to the airport and Air Force One pulled out and Kennedy steps out with Jackie. First time I'd seen him in color. Anybody had seen him in color. Well, he gives a speech. My brother goes up, squeezes through the crowd, shakes his hand. And I, I couldn't get up there, but I saw Kennedy. He was like looking at Jesus. And his, yeah. I'm not even being sacrilegious to a little Catholic kid. It was like, there's John F. Kennedy. Three days later, he was shot. Wow. And none of the nuns could explain it. The priests, my parents, Walter Cronkite, nobody had an answer. I want to know, because I, I bought the belief system. God protects the good people. You know, you have a guardian angel, you're a good boy, you go to heaven. God made everything. And after that, and now I didn't know this at the time, but looking back at my life, that's when I started doing really poorly in school. That's when a lot of apathy sent in, set mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. And up through high school, I didn't give a fuck. I thought it was all bullshit. And not until I got into uh, community college, you know, started doing theater, did I really care because this is what I wanted. So. Oh, you mean you just had general despondency? You didn't care about anything? Yeah, I was like, I, I, I no, I cared about reading and I cared about uh, being funny. That's all I cared about. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I mean, like, I, you're, it's like a page from my book. When my wife left, I was like, I thought I would was in the protection plan. I thought you, mm-hmm. you protect the good guys. What's interesting is I'm like, now that I've studied this stuff a little bit more, I'm like, none of that stuff is really in the texts. You know what I mean? Guardian no. angels, God protects the good people. One of my favorite Bible verses, cause I'm a weird guy is in Isaiah. And it's like, I, the Lord, your God create light and darkness. I create chaos and pain and light and good. And I'm like, none of this was taught to us. We're back to the idea that the bombs, the pain, is what we're here to do. We live in a world of light and dark. And, and of course, as human beings, we just want light. We just want donuts. We just want pleasure. Yeah. But none of those things would exist without horrible tragedy and weird strip things like what happened to JFK. Of course, I can't summarize that because that's too large and personal. Did you watch that Stephen King thing? It was James Franco yep. about JFK. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I the ending. You guess the ending because yeah. I don't. I don't want to spoil it. What's it called? It's the date. It's four, four or seven. Eleven twenty-two sixty. That's right. Eleven twenty. How could I forget that? It's my brother's birthday. Is JFK's assassination? So anyway, that show, which and I and it was in uh, Mad Men when they she had a wedding. Slattery's daughter. That's right. That's right. Had her wedding on uh, November twenty-third. A great episode. Yeah, the day but after. The, I don't want to spoil it, but it seemed to me that Stephen King was trying to address, like, if we remove these things that we hate so much, right. what does it do to reality? I thought that was a really interesting show. So, oh, yeah, uh, it, it was a really interesting show. 
and uh, not a lot of people saw it, but I, I ran into it and watched it. It was because that period, as in Mad Men, uh, fascinates me. The '60s, the time I, I, agree. I came up. I agree. What? So I, I'm totally with you. Not that you need my validation, but I'm like, what a what a perfect um, place to have that fall apart. Did you ever feel the need, or do you have any system now that you like? Is there something? other than chaos that you uh, subscribe to? Uh, the things I like the meaning of life. Yeah. The meaning of life. Yeah. It's none of my business. You know who said that? Who? Buddha. Did he? Yeah. He said, it's like somebody got shot in the leg with an arrow and asking the meaning of life is like asking who shot the arrow, but he's like, we don't know. Get the arrow out of your leg, meaning end the suffering. And that's what we're here to do is to end suffering, not to know who shot the arrow. So you're very Buddhist with that answer. I love it. Well, maybe I got it from that. Uh, I don't think you did. You're a very brilliant man. I'm sure that's a, a heavy original. Well, it's just it's just the way I feel. I mean, here's the thing, and this is great, and people worry about getting older, you know, and I recently turned 66. It's great to have the perspective to look over your life and see the patterns as I did with the JFK thing. Yeah. You know, and uh, unfortunately, the Beatles came along and Cassius Clay, then later Muhammad Ali. So there was a lot of joy there. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we're not here. Just we're, we're here to deal with everything the best we can. And I feel I'm on a need to know basis. Yes, you are. I love that. And and um, it really helps me stay sane, because if you try to figure out like trying to figure out why does this joke work? It doesn't matter. It works. Try mm. it. You know, uh, whether it's a joke you've been working on or if it just floats into your head when you're in the middle of a set, just put it out there mm. and try to move forward as much as you can. I love that. I also see some wisdom in looking back at your life and identifying patterns, because when I hear about you losing your faith and, and sort of your worldview uh, when Kennedy was assassinated, you sort of start to see that you are a product of a much larger thing which is what wisdom is. Like we can talk, you're talking about something that I've only seen in black and white. You saw JFK in color. I mean, this right, is crazy. Right. And then in, in your 66 years, now you have the ability, not everybody takes advantage of this, but you can look back and just like me with my divorce, you go like, oh, this was happening. I thought it was the Pete Holmes show. I go around and I'm the center of the universe. And you realize you are in an ocean of occurrence and lawful unfolding of physics, a lawful unfolding of wh- wh- how human beings behave. I guess you could say anthropology. So y- it becomes less personal. You can go like, oh, there was little Alan Havey believing what the nuns told him. Oh, there was little Alan Havey with his heart broken and the Jesus Christ of presidents was shot and murdered and we saw it on TV. And God didn't protect him. So it, exactly. he, he doesn't work that way. Now, I didn't come to this at the time. But as I look back, I see where, oh, this is where it's set, and this is the pattern of my life. And, right. Uh, How could you? you know, and I remember, like, when I got into show business, I walked into a strong headwind. Everybody thought I was out of my fucking mind. You walked into what? A headwind. As, uh-huh. as far as people just like, are you crazy? Yeah. You, no one said, hey, you know, one woman said to me, a friend of my parents, she saw me to play in college, and she said to me, you know, I can see you doing this for a living. I held on to that comment uh, like it was a life preserver 
Yeah, like, that's right. I, I, I held on to that. I go, good. Someone, someone sees it. Yes. Now, not uh, you're going to be a star. Not you. You can make a living is the key thing. That's yeah. what I wanted to do in this business. Make a living. Make it into my life. Get into it. And if I couldn't do it with acting, I would have been a stagehand. I would have, yeah. or I would have been a director or a writer or any way I could get into this business. But that's you know. that's uh, Jay Barishall did this podcast, and he was like, if I wasn't, he's like, I got into acting because they wouldn't let me direct. <laughs> basically really like he was like i just wanted to be in movies so he was like if i wasn't acting or directing or writing i would have been catering i would i just wanted to be on the set i had right. to be on the set and i love identifying and hearing that's right being a part of it i relate to so much of what you're saying i just like taking walks down gratitude lanes you made me think of when i did my first improv show in college I didn't hear the compliment, but my director, Dan Buck, said, the guy who runs the haunted house here in Salem, Mass., a few towns over, said, clearly that guy is very special or something like that. And I thought that was the biggest thing. I I, I mean, it still makes me happy to remember because he might as well have been uh, Bud Freeman from the improv. Like the guy that books the showbiz of the haunted (laughs) house thought I was special I held on to it forever. And and how many people did he see? How many ghouls and spooks did he have to hire? <laughs> That's right. That's witches right. and stuff like, hey, that kid, you know, that kid he's got, he's got moxie. That's right. He knew I had moxie. I had zombie moxie. Well, that it doesn't matter. It's still, zombie moxie works in show business. That's right. You need zombie moxie. Yeah. And when I was in high school, we had a news class and all I wanted to do was be the anchor. It's like you wanted right. to be the priest. It's right. like, I remember it clicking for me. It was a Malcolm Gladwell book or something where they were like, there's this odd species. Most people, if you're like, you need to speak in front of people or you need to improvise or you need to this or that. Some people are like, get me the fuck out of here. And I'm just so grateful. And I feel it coming off of you as well, that you can be in that weird 0.5% that's like, I want to do that. And I I love it. I love it. Yeah. You can't stop me, baby. Yeah. I'll do it. Although you're, Yeah. No, that that's what happened. I did plays in school, any kind of verbal or oral uh, exam I could take. I love getting up and, you know, humiliated myself many times, yeah. you know, embarrassed myself, but I didn't care. Yeah. I just, I just love to get up in front of people. Well, I'm so glad you're doing it. Uh, is there anything else in the God realm? I mean, I feel like we're, we're leaning pretty, what business is of ours, which I think is wonderful, but I don't want to leave anything off the table. Well, when I tell people I believe in God, they say, you know, they go, really? I go, but I don't believe in the God that you don't believe in. That's it. And when I, when I tell people uh, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the God that you believe in. I don't believe in the God that people believe in and don't believe in. But I've got my own thing going on. And I'm 66. And it, it's working for me. Not that I prayed and, you know, all this stuff. But I visualize. I work. I, I try to do the homework as much as I can. And I really, being grateful, though, is the best gift you can have. Having a good attitude, no matter what happens, picking yourself up, going forward, is key to life, whatever you do. Yeah. I, I Well, what I hear, not, I don't want to spiritualize it, but I hear a person listening for feedback from reality. 
adjusting their inner state to best suit that feedback and finding a flow that, that, that harmony of relationship with reality to me is at the core of a lot of spiritual or, or mysticism. I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about like, I am a part of a thing. I have a place here. I'm not a stranger here. I'm going to find my groove and you know it by the feedback you get uh, internally, externally. And, and that feels very beautiful to me. Yeah, no, I, you know, I'm right. I'm along with that. Plus you also have to side hustle. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, um, I was a bartender before I was a comedian. I was a comedian and then silver Friedman who had passed me at the improv heard I was out of work. So he goes, you want to answer phones here in the afternoon for reservation? Sure. And I was good at it. You know, uh, hang on, take that reservation. Okay. I'm with you. Hang on a minute. I'll be right yeah. with you. You know, so I was handling the phones well. So a couple of times the guys would say, Hey, we have a show in Westchester. Our comedian dropped out. Who are the good comedians there? Uh, I, I would say, well, Don Marrera, John Mendoza. And this new guy, Alan Havey is, is pretty good. <laughs> and of course they didn't know it was me. Yeah. And they go, well, what is Havey? Well, how much is it? And they go a hundred bucks. I go, hang on. I'll call Havey at home and see if he can do it. So I put the guy on hold. I go get a drink, get a Coke, sip it, pick up the phone. And go. Havey says he can do it. He goes, okay, have Havey be at the improv. You got it. They go, what's your, they go, what's your name? I go, I'm Al. <laughs> that was it. So I'm, I was able. To, I'm Al and yeah, Navy. No, no, because there was a guy there named Al. I love it. So I, I was able to book a few gigs on my own just by hustling over the phone. I hope Dom Marrera doesn't hear this. Oh, Dom, Dom, <laughs> you know, yeah, Dom Marrera's had, had a great. I mean, have you had Dom on the show? No, I only know him a little bit. Okay, well, it's a, a great way to know him. Yeah, to interview him, and he's like off the cuff, one of the funniest guys. In fact, when I talk to young comedians, I ask them who their favorite comedians. Are. You know, many times it's Don Marrera. Yeah, that's great. No, the the times that I've seen him, not only was he funny, but he was a very sweet guy too. I really yeah. like him. Yeah. Can you tell me? I mean, you have all these experiences, so many times at the cellar, hanging out with these greats, being a great. Um, one of the questions we ask at the end that I love is. Can can you tell me the time you laughed the hardest? I don't know if I asked Oscar that or if you had a second to think. No, about you it. did. You did. And I yeah. remembered it. And it's, first of all, it's many, many times. Yeah, sure. Where I've lost it. Just laughing. That's a great uh, benefit of this uh, business. We're in if, you know, if you have a, a good sense of humor. Sure. But uh, Warren Thomas, the late Warren Thomas comedian, San Francisco. I, uh, John Ross, a comedian said, Hey, you know, my father just died. I was tr driving cross country. I was, was going to go to San Francisco. He said, you can use my apartment. So uh, very gracious. I used his apartment and Warren Thomas was a friend of his. I'd never met him. One of the funniest guys I've ever met. And we have laughed helplessly together. And, and a lot of people say this about Warren, but one time we're driving and all of a sudden I had to take a shit. And I, he goes, what are you doing? I, I got to get to a gas station. got to take a shit. And he started laughing. And we pull in, and and there's a guy there pumping gas, and he goes, "Hey, I don't go where do you work and knock the gas pump out of your tank." You know, it was it was out of context, but it was like it was like comedian saying, "Hey, I don't go to where you work and knock the dick out of your mouth." Remember, right, 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 right. That was an old thing. When I was laughing you. so hard, I had to like 
I took my thumb as I'm running and stuck it in my ass. So I wouldn't shit my pants. <laughs> oh my God. Waddling to the place. It, it's outside of my pants. I get into the bathroom. I barely get my pants off. Does like, that work? Like little Jack Horner? You got no, to- <laughs> it doesn't work. It's all I could do. It didn't work. It, I, but I made it in time. But there I am shitting and laughing. Two of the greatest pleasures you will ever have <laughs> in your life. And just weeping with hilarity and relief. And my God, my father had just passed away in April. This is the summer of 84. It was like, okay, now this is like God saying, we have to have Alan hang out with Warren Thomas to get him back on track. I was depressed. I was being negative. Warren Thomas opened up my heart. He opened up my sense of humor. Mm. God bless him. I remember that those two weeks in San Francisco with him, it was pure joy. People forget, I forget, comedians sometimes forget that laughter, like, look, this is a post-it on my computer. It says, because joy matters. Yeah. It matters. Like, that story matters. Like, you laughing and shitting when your father just passed away fucking matters. Like, it matters. It's like, it's one of the ways you can help. Someone has an arrow in their leg. We're going to take it out. I'm going to do some bits while they do it, just to get your mind off of it. That's the comedian's job. That's why when I was an altar boy serving funerals, I had to bite my lip for, to keep from laughing of because course. so much of it was so hysterical to me. Of course it was because you any, had to make because it was so much sadness. You had to think of something funny. That's life. That's life. life. That's great. This has, been, this has been great. I'm so glad, Alan. I, I, I'm not, I sort of regret coming at you hot in the roasty mode, but you're so much more than what I thought. Because I was like, oh, it's heavy. We did that live show, and you were kind of gruff. You were in your persona. And what, I was what, like, what live show? Remember, we did it. I, I, it was some live podcast downtown LA. Oh, and, right, right, right. And I just I came into this one being like, oh, it's heavy. On my show, he, he played a gruff guy. I think he's a gruff guy. Uh, yeah. Well, there was I'm an audience in. there, too. Of course. There's yeah, no audience. Right. There is an audience here, but we're not playing well, off. So. That's this right. is this is why I like podcasts because you can talk, you know. And, That's and what I'm saying. Talk. I guess what I'm saying is I I love an opportunity to go like, of course, you idiot. This is a deep, sweet, thoughtful, wonderful man, and oh, what, a, what a great way to spend my afternoon. Absolutely, but, but thank you, and and listen to Skip Intro, which Skip will be intro. out maybe by the time this podcast is out. Yes, it will be. And, you know, you can always reach so. me on alanhavey.com um, for comments. I like to hear comments or, you know, I'm thinking of uh, teaching the philosophy of stand-up like when I'm 75 or something. I love that. What is, what is, it's funny, I was like, people find this in, in uh, let's say, 60 years. You and I are both long gone. Give me the, the heavy. No, no, no. I don't give, give it away for free. It. I'm going to write a book. I'm <laughs> not going to give it away here. I've given listen, I've told you about when I was a little boy, uh I almost uh crapped my pants as an adult. I've opened up here, okay? That's plenty for free. You're right. Well, that sounds like good show business advice. If you're good at something, never do it for free. That's the that's Heath Ledger's Joker. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see that cartoon movie? Yeah, yeah. No, I I saw Heath Ledger Joker. I I, okay. I I go to movies. Okay, good. Not into the whimsical shit. I understand. Um, well, Havy, thank you so much. Would you say the catchphrase, which is just how we sign off the guest, I believe you know, says keep it crispy. Would you grace us with a keep it crispy? Sure. Keep it extra crispy. Ooh, like that last piece of chicken. 
John mm-hmm. Fidel Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Lots of love hey, to you. Thank you. Same to you, buddy. Bye. Talk soon. Bye-bye. I'm so crispy. I'm so crispy. My ice cream, you make you want to get